Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Mass General Cancer Center, dedicated to providing the latest therapies and cancer specialists who are experienced in your cancer. When you hear the word cancer, their team is ready. Learn more at massgeneral.org cancer. And New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. Today on Boston Public Radio, is a blue wave going to crash before it hits the shore? Will it be a red tide? Or how about a blue wave with a red undertow? With the Democrats losing their advantage each day with the reports, it's not just young voters, but Latino voters who won't turn out. We'll open the lines and ask you what you think will happen, and are you getting a scared? From there, we talked to Chad Griffin. He's president of the Human Rights Campaign about the Trump administration seriously considering a reductionist interpretation of what sex people are, which could ultimately roll back protections for transgender people. Then at noon, national security expert Juliet Kayyem is here, and as you know, that means it's Mueller time. From there, MIT economist Jonathan Gruber talks us through the drug pricing conundrum and WGBH executive arts editor Jared Bowen discusses something that may actually outdo Banksy's Sotheby's stunt, an algorithm having its moment at Christie's auction house. That more is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. Before we get started, because the topic I know is going to depress you, can I do a little quiz to lift your spirits? Sort of a fun sure. quiz. Do you mind doing it? No. Nope. Okay, I'm going to list a bunch of things, and then when I'm done, you have to tell me what they have in common. Okay, do you understand the question? I think a list so. a bunch of things, okay. and you say, what are they, what are they in common? All right, it's pretty okay. obvious. All okay, right. ready? Mm-hmm. Sausage, pizza. I know. Got, not yet. <laughs> Clam chowder, <laughs> beer, taco, <laughs> lobster roll. Buffalo chicken sliders, <laughs> ice cream sundae, M&M's, and uh, popcorn. Don't forget the brownies and the chocolate oh, a brown- chip cookies. Oh, I'm sorry. Brownies and a chocolate chip <laughs> So what do those 11 those items have in good? things that Jim Brownie ate last night, and we were lucky enough to have a chance to go to the World Series. We went to the World Series. the best right. nights ever. I've never been to the World Series in my life. It was great. Well, a friend of ours took us, and we were in a place did, where there we were was eternally grateful. There was food. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but I had a sausage, pizza, clam chowder, beer, taco, <laughs> lobster roll, buffalo chicken sliders, a uh, an ice cream sundae, did you popcorn, French fries. Oh, and French fries. And when I met you outside Fenway, yeah. you were standing with peanut shells up to your ankles. Can I tell you something? I was waiting for our friend and uh, Marjorie. I would say I bought one of those five dollar bag of peanuts and it was boring. So at the end of the thing, I would say three hundred peanuts. Uh, he was surrounded by started. peanut shells. Okay, fine. So you got it right. In any case, in just thirteen days, voters will decide which party controls Congress and the legislative agenda for the next couple of years. In the last couple of days, the forecast is that the blue wave is ebbing. The crimson tide is on the rise, and both Republicans and Democrats passionately feel that in this election, the stakes are supremely high, meaning the enthusiasm gap is disappearing. Democrats, what are your election fears if the GOP keeps control of everything? It'll end Mueller's investigation. There'll be a loss of health insurance for millions, more tax cuts for the wealthy. And Republicans, what's at stake for you if the Democrats do better than expected, gain power in Congress? Is it uh, uh, more power to block Trump nominees, having the power to further investigate the Trump administration? So for it doesn't matter what your politics are. We want to know, because this is what Marjorie needs to know, 
What are your midterm anxieties, uh, your fantasies? How are you I coping exactly. with the fact that this exactly. thing is 13 days away? Exactly. And it could be I need big. help. I need help because because I can't deal with a repeat of 2016 when I was obsessively checking real clear real clear politics. Why can't you do it? That's exactly what you're doing. I'm, I'm trying to resist doing that. I'm try, or, or, you know, 538. You know, a lot of people, despite what everybody says about the polls, the national polls were pretty accurate last time. The state-by-state polls were not. But but you don't trust the polls in the same way. And also, I'm thinking, what am I going to do election night? I mean, you have to kind of plan ahead. Do you have, you know, friends over or do you sit with your family and, 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 and watch the election or do you try just to go to bed early? And there's a, li- a lot of anxiety. And if you're a, a, a Trump person, we have, we have some Trump um, supporters and Trump vo- uh, voters who call occasionally and email us a lot. What is raising your excitement level? Is it the caravan that, that we're seeing pictures of? No, I think of it's the opposite. I is bet you there's anxiety. I don't agree with you. I don't think it's what's exciting. I think there's anxiety on their side, too. Well, the excitement. The time of Trump could be severely curtailed But the enthusiasm level is rising uh, among Republicans. It is. That's supposedly correct. not, you know, kind of, you know, come see, come saw before. Now it's, it's rising. What is it? It's rising. And But I really want to know, people were... Elated if you were a Trump person and ready to jump off the Tobin Bridge if they were a Hillary Clinton person last time, even if they weren't that crazy about Hillary Clinton. Do you want to go through that again? I mean, we've been through this emotional wrenching two years. How are you coping? Lots of people I know, we can't do that because we're in the much-hated media, mm. are just turning it off. They're just turning it off. They're, they're, That's how they're coping. They're, they are ignoring. So we want to know essentially, I don't know what Mar- where Marjorie's going with this, but we want to know how you're coping with 13 days to go. Uh, in what could be a really important election that's getting closer and closer. Now, I don't know what Marjorie's worried about, because if you read the New York Times, a story by David Leonhardt, if that's how you say your name, a couple of days ago, yeah. he writes about what happens if the Republicans keep control of the House and the Senate. And I don't think it's that a big deal. Here's what he lists, Marjorie. The end of Robert Mueller's investigation, the loss of health insurance for several million people, new laws that make it harder to vote, more tax cuts for the rich, more damage to the environment, and a Republican Party molded even more in the image of President Trump. What What is it that's causing you anxiety? What's the... Well, a lot of those things, not to mention the, the Supreme Court um, as well, is causing Can a I lot tell of anxiety. You, I shouldn't have listed, which I just did, more power to stop Trump uh, nominations. Maybe in theory... Because uh, if the House goes Democratic, there's at least a feel that it's trending back in a more balanced direction. But the conventional wisdom, Marjorie, is not only the Democrats have no hope of taking over the Senate, but as John King told us yesterday, there's a pretty decent chance they're going to increase their majority by one or two seats, which means there's even greater insulation, greater likelihood that the next Kavanaugh or whoever else for uh, the president is proposing for federal court judges at every level, will be confirmed pretty easily. You know, Jim, just as, as a quick aside before mm. we get to the subject yeah. of the moment, yeah. uh, people are emailing, wanting to know after that litany of things that you yeah. recited that you ate. Yeah. What if you are, are still stuck in the in the chair from the stadium, if you're wearing the chair with you this morning, or if you managed to get out no, of the I chair. No, I didn't want to get into this, but a couple of security guards did have to carry <laughs> me into my car. <laughs> it was, and by the way, if anybody thinks I'm exaggerating... I, I, I keep leaving things. I did leave the French fries out. I had about 100 M&Ms. So I forgot about that. But what I did do 
is I dipped uh, a couple of pieces of cucumber in a uh, oh, in a little light dip I, to I, just I sort of feel. I didn't notice you eating the cucumber. By the way, but Trenny came over. You're not criticizing Trenny her. Trenny And she left with a bunch of brownies, too, she for did. her colleagues. So. Well, that's right. But she didn't devour an entire bowl of lobster salad, Jim, before she dipped into the brownies. Let me tell you, that brownies. was the biggest bowl of lobster salad <laughs> I've ever seen. But it is no more. 877-301-8970. But the question, to cut through all the muck that we have created here, how are you coping? We uh, The assumption is there's How's a lot of anxiety pressure? on both sides of this thing. That's right. We're 13 days away. It is getting closer and closer and closer. Let's start with Alex from my hometown of Fall River. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks sure. for calling. What's up? So my prediction is the Dems will add in the House, lose in the Senate. But if the Republicans end up keeping everything, I think I would actually give up as a voter in this country, it's not a country I would want to live in anymore. If, like, the American people are putting a stamp of approval on what's going on on a daily basis now. I, but I, I would, if, if it turns out the Republicans can maintain control of the House, I think your analysis that the American people, regardless of what the total number of votes is, if they control 218 or more seats out of 435 in the House, I think you're exactly right that the American people are saying the direction Donald Trump is taking this country in, whether it's caravans, whether it's Christine Blasey Ford mocking, whether it's tax cuts for the rich, is exactly the direction they want this country going in. I think that's a wonderful and scary first call, but I'm with you, Alex. Thank you very much for the call. And by the way, I would I would make the case, uh, I mean this objectively, uh, and I assume Trump supporters would agree, that the likelihood of Trump doubling down on some of these policies, if after there was a prediction that the, the Democrats were going to sweep to victory in the House, if they don't have victory 13 days from now, I think it's only going to embolden Trump and his uh, uh, his mostly sycophantic supporters uh, in Congress to do more than he's even done so far. Listen to this. This is from Joy in Brookline. What's that? I'm a basket case. I have a constant stomach ache, afraid that there'll be a red wave. Republicans will increase the seats in the House and the Senate. God help us all. <laughs> so there's a lot of anxiety out there. I'm with you. I'm very anxious about this whole thing, too. And I that's what. Tell, so, but, but we need strategies. I mean, you don't want to be doing bad things like getting drunk or taking drugs or anything. I mean, should you be meditating more? Should you, I mean, you don't want to be in this constant state of agita. You know what I you mean? You know, I just realized I want to what? correct the record for a second. Yep. I actually only had a half a slice of pizza <laughs> because at the point, the pizza didn't come out till late. And I was really full, and I really wanted it because there was a lot of cheese. So I sliced it down the middle and shared it with a guy I just met. So it wasn't quite as extreme. You did as really. I said. You what? You did for the you know what? I go the smorgasbord approach. Jim sent me in a couple of times. He didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't send. Back. You said, thing. "Can I get you something because, when I go?" That's right. I said, "Yes." Can you get me everything, please? <laughs> And she did. Greg in Rhode Island, we're talking about uh, the anxiety that at least some, if not most, people are feeling about this election 13 days away. Hi, Greg. Hey, good morning, guys. And to you. Uh, Jim, there's only nine innings in a baseball game, and you were um, able to have like 11 different items. Greg, it's even worse. <laughs> we, Greg, we left after the home run in the seventh inning, so we only made oh, it through wow. seven innings. <laughs> seven innings. Wow. All yeah. right. You had a good time. It was a great game. We it was, did. It was we were so really lucky fun. to be yeah, there. It was great. great. But go ahead. Yeah. Um, not to the bad news. Sorry, Brother Marjorie. Um, I, I'm going to have to send you, to be nice, a bottle of vodka. Oh, thank you. A box of tissues. <laughs> well, a box of tissues, too, for a couple of weeks, because I'm sorry. Yeah, probably going to end up needing them. So what uh, do you think, though? Gain... 
Oh, go ahead. We're go ahead. About three seats. There are about three seats to the Senate, and probably continue to maintain the House. Do you really think they're um, going to keep control of the House, Greg? Is that your fear? Yeah, or I, re- that's well, your... I really do, but no, I really do. And I don't just going to make more sense out. But I, you can bet online on everything and anything, right? I, I bet on Trump to win. I bet on Brexit when people didn't think the British would leave the European Union. Yep. I bet that they would. I bet on Trump as a just a Republican nominee. He was twenty-five to one before he got the nomination. I bet on that, and I bet on to, at two to one to beat Hillary for four hundred bucks. Wow! Yeah, but, but explain um, to me wow. why do you think? Uh, I understand you've got good. Keeping it. Well, you can bet on it. I I just I know they're going to keep the house. So there's no doubt about it. So what's what is the thing though? Is it? I mean, people have well, talked a lot about the caravan in recent days. People talk about being upset yeah. about uh, the way the Democrats handled Judge Kavanaugh. Is there any rhyme to reason? Yeah, or are you just good at pretty much? It's unfortunately you you don't feel the same way that Republicans feel that that the caravan isn't just seven thousand poor people because it's backed by Republican or you know like radical uh, leftists trying to you know disrupt things. Uh, Kavanaugh, everybody, you said everybody was a credible witness. There was two that were completely uncredible, and one was still iffy. And I know you don't see it that way, but a lot of people are saying, it just isn't fair. To say that every day that you have to wake up in this country is in bad shape, the economy's never been better, nobody's cutting people's heads off by ISIS, North Korea, we could have some improvement. There's no way you can't say that things aren't improved. And you even give them credit every now and then, Marjorie. Greg, I think well, I, I try. Way, other than the fact that you're factually wrong, I think, in terms of two of the three accusers being not credible, one may not have been credible, but I think two were, I think your analysis of where things are and at least the analysis of why Republicans could maintain control of the House, I think is spot on. And but thanks yeah, Greg, for the call. Well, Greg, let me ask you one last thing before you go. Well, never mind. We should move on. We get a lot of calls. Greg, thank home. you very much for the call. We appreciate it. Let's 877-301-8970. We're talking about election anxiety with uh, voting. And by the way, Callie just reminded us, our colleague, I think her commentary is on early voting. Early voting started on Monday. Uh, in Massachusetts. And that means that you can vote. You don't need an excuse, not like absentee ballot. You can vote. And for example, I don't know if this is in every jurisdiction, but I'm voting on Saturday. I can't get there during the week, but on in many jurisdictions in Massachusetts, you should check. You can vote on the weekend. You can vote on Saturday too, early voting. So check out early voting. Just call your local election commission. I'm sorry, Marjorie. Donna in the car. What do hi, you think, Donna? Hi, Donna. Oh, hi. Hi. Um, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you, thank you. I uh, love you guys, but my blood pressure, uh, Marjorie, is through the roof, and um, I'm thinking that the polls just make matters worse. Every time the poll says somebody's going to win, everybody else on the other side gets energized to go vote for their team. Uh, I think the polls are just a nightmare. However, I think it's time to research the blood pressure, the strokes, and the heart attacks since 2016 because I I just I'm one inch away from the hospital I'll tell you and uh, it's just getting worse every day but I can't stop listening just to see if we're still on this planet so uh, more power to you Marjorie I don't know how you do it every day well yeah, I don't know how she does it either but I would you know a, a serious point in the middle of what Donna just said and thanks for your first call Donna. I would bet you, you know what would have been an interesting analysis? You're a really healthy person. You're really fit. I know you don't like, I don't know why you don't like me saying that, but you're really fit. Thank you. I would bet you, your, as Donna suggested, she wasn't just talking about you, I bet your blood pressure is consistently higher since November of 2016 than it was, for example, in the two years prior. Don't you think that's a fair bet? Well, 
Yeah, but it's not just the, the transition from Obama to Trump because I I didn't feel this way about previous Republican presidents. No, you know, whose a lot of whose policies were different. Um, so it is the transition from Obama. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's two years it's of the Donald person, Trump. It's the person um, that's running the country that that uh, upsets me. You a know lot. what I can't say beyond outcomes. The thing, and I am a believer in. Divided government. Uh, That may shock some listeners. I think checks and balances like that are actually helpful if there's a spirit of collaboration and you know what they were. Do you read the story about? uh, It's really touching about Sandra Day O'Connor suffering from dementia. She wrote this letter, and I think everybody knows. In a beautiful story, it's really a beautiful story. Not only did she leave uh, the Supreme Court to take care of her her husband husband, who had Alzheimer's, but she continues. To take, essentially take care of her husband when her husband with Alzheimer's falls in love with another Somebody woman I know. at the Alzheimer's yeah. treatment center or whatever the Which hell it's called. Which I guess is not unusual because they forget I guess. a lot of their previous married but life But she would go and visit her husband right. who's holding hands. But th- that's not the point. The point is, talk about whack, feeling nostalgic. They talk about the collaborative – I mean, for example, Ruth Bader Ginsburg – uh, I think it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg is talking about her while they disagreed on many issues on a whole variety of women's issues. They voted the same way. But the whole article, not the whole article, a lot of the article is about the spirit of compromise and the spirit of collaboration in the Supreme Court not so long ago. That to me is the scariest part. And I would hope even Trump supporters would feel this way is that without some checks so that people are forced to work with each other. If one house is controlled by one party, one by the other, they are forced, if they want anything to happen, to be collaborative, even if they don't want to be. I, that's what I'm sickest of, is the abject, nauseating partisanship in this country, uh, with nobody willing to talk to anybody else uh, looking for compromise. Kate and Concord, what do you think, Kate? Hi. I'm calling because I share a lot of your feelings, but I've come up with a different way of handling it that has been mentioned Great. thus far. Oh, what we're is ready. It? And, it is, and it is just being incredibly active. I coordinate, I coordinate a group that gets together every Sunday at our local church in First Parish in Concord. We meet from 1130 to 2, and we postcard, and we phone bank, and we text. I love that. And and canvas on the weekends, and it's really helping, I think, not to just give me, but other people hope and to feel like we in some way might be able to affect this, because unless we are the blue wave, it won't happen. I love that call. That's a great call, Kay. Thank you very much. That was very upbeat, wasn't it? You feel like you're doing, I mean, even if you say, well, I'm in blue Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. so if you want to change uh, in either direction, it's not going to come from here. I agree with it. When you stay busy and active, you feel better about yourself. Your mind is not wandering to worst-case scenarios. I think that is exactly right. we got to take a break, Marjorie. We have to take a break. But what we're talking about is coping mechanisms prior to the midterms, asking you if you're in an election frenzy or are you tuning it out. Is it foolish to get worked up about anything until the results are in? That conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, it's our daily midterm catharsis, I guess you call it. We're asking you if you have election day jitters, anxiety. If so, what are they? 
regardless of which part of the political spectrum you're on. Are you tuning it all out? Is early voting a remedy, the knowledge that you've already done, which can, or what Kate from Concord is doing, you know, staying active, writing letters, that sort of thing. So if you are suffering from some level of election year anxiety, uh, how are you coping? I mean, what do you have a coping mechanism? I keep remembering, you know, we had a, a, a I think it was, uh, uh, I can't remember, we had a really prominent author in here uh, who, a Pulitzer Prize winner, it was I believe. Egan. Oh, was Egan. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what is her? What Manhattan her? Beach was a book about yeah, Manhattan Beach. Yeah, what's her first Beach. name? I can't, I'm drawing um, a blank. Jennifer, Jennifer thank Egan, Jennifer thank Egan. you, Amanda. You said she tuned it off. And really smart, I have, really focused. She just she says as soon as Trump comes on the news, this is about six months ago, she just turns the news off because she can't deal with it. That's her coping mechanism, but it doesn't make it go away. Maybe it makes it go away for you, but it doesn't make it go away. Well, listen to this from Judith in Rehoboth. She said she voted early Monday. That brought momentary relief. On Tuesday, I deactivated my Facebook because friends who are like-minded in politics make me nervous. The family and friends on Facebook who voted for Trump make me ill. And she says she gets relief from not seeing all these opinions every day and that newspapers and TV uh, news and, and all the news, including uh, NPR's made her uh, very anxious. So I think that there's a lot of, I mean, I have a lot of friends um, who have just said they're, they're just, they can't deal with it. They're just turning it off. They, they don't want to hear about all this stuff because it gets them too upset. But I, I, I understand that to a degree, but that's only like a, that's sort of like a marker. You, you bide time on November 6th, there is going to be an election. And either the Republicans are going to maintain control of both houses of Congress or they're not. So how does that really help you in the long term? Maybe it gets you through I don't know. 13 days, but it doesn't get you through post-November 6th, A couple it? of people are telling us that meditation really helps. We should all be well, sitting in the morning going, oh, you? I am. I am does that meditator. help you? Yes, it, it does? does. When you're meditating, the are, you able to not think about, are you able to not really not think about the stuff that you're consumed with the rest of the day? Well, I've been doing it for a long time. I know, but you can really? But you can You can, You can. can zone out. If wow. you've been doing it for as long as I have, which is forever, you can uh, get your little uh, mantra, your little word, or your mind goes blank. Anyway, uh, Paul mentions that um, I mentioned getting drunk or doing drugs before he points out that marijuana has been shown to ease anxiety and blood pressure, and it's not really a drug per se anymore, although we still can't get it. By the it. way, are the pot shops ever going to open I in know. Massachusetts? I don't know. You know. They finally approved the testing labs, which were the final issue for, I guess, Leicester and Northampton, those are the first two sites. I think so. In any case, Rebecca and Framingham, are you suffering from midterm anxiety, and how are you dealing with it if you are? Hi. Hi. Uh, First-time caller, long-time listener. Thank so you. I'm Thank actually you. a... I'm actually a DACA recipient, oh. so I can't vote. I'm not a citizen. Uh-huh. So I've been following uh, everything very closely because this is immigration policy, something that affects me directly. Uh-huh. Uh, and due to a long story, I'm actually the only person in my family that's here uh, that's undocumented. So every time I tend to follow, I tend to get very anxious because my future kind of rides on yeah. immigration reform. How yeah. do you deal with it? Lack of it? How do you deal with it, Rebecca? Uh, I actually stopped following it so closely because every time I see something I see legislation go through I get super excited or see they start talking about it and you know usually it tends to fall through or when I see the reverse happen of people talking about potentially getting rid of DACA that just makes me kind of want to stop everything that I'm doing not knowing if I have to kind of uproot myself and go back to my home country which I haven't been to since I was three so I stopped following everything so closely and started focusing on what I can do here and now uh, and kind of getting everything together here and not, you know, being so negative about everything um, in or- to make sure that I don't end up making a drastic decision that could end up affecting me or my family negatively. That's Rebecca, how, how old are you? 
Uh, I'm 22. So you're 22, and you've been here for almost 20 years. Uh, I yeah. admire your calm because you are in 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 a in a tough position, obviously. Um, well, you know, you also, for- yeah, I don't want to make you uncommon because it sounds like you've done a wonderful job with your own mental health about that. You know, I'm just reading this morning, this is for both you and Rebecca, is December 7th, I think, is when the Homeland Security funding disappears. And most people, that's post-election, obviously, lame duck session, when most people think there'll be pressure again on the wall. I was reading this morning, I can't even remember when the Democrats struck the deal, what, a year or so ago? If Trump were to do DACA, which he apparently was willing to do anyway... Uh, in return for which they give him the whole $25 billion. Yes, Why did it fall apart? I think because the far right was upset about it. it. Rush Limbaugh was upset about know. it after he cut a deal. Was that what it was? I don't know. Do you remember, Rebecca? Uh, I don't remember exactly why it fell through. I think there was like, I think there were agreements that were made that as soon as it came out, there were disagreements in terms of like, that is not what we wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, Definitely, that was probably one of the moments I was most hopeful. I was actually convinced that, like, this is it. This is the moment. So was I. And, yeah. But um, definitely I'm in a much better position than a lot of other people. I feel like I I have another friend who's DACA recipient who's in a much worse situation. At least I have people in my family that are documented, so I potentially could explore other routes. Um, It's just a little tragic, the misconceptions that go around about, like, documentation and DACA and... But, you know, it's just something that a lot of people, uh, specifically, I think it's 800,000 uh, people yeah. in America have to deal with every day. Well, and also, I know you don't need to hear this, but people who don't know it need to hear it, is that you're a perfect example of somebody who's exactly the same as the 22-year-old kid who sat in class next to you all those years, who just happened to have been born in Framingham rather than raised in Framingham. I mean, it's just, it's so obvious what the right thing is to do here and i hope for you and hundreds of thousands of others ultimately people in washington have the wherewithal to do it rebecca that was a wonderful first call and yeah, i hope you thank call you. again yeah good luck soon. good luck how would you like to deal i mean no, talk about calm no. how would you like to deal with that kind of anxiety when you have no idea and it isn't like it's a pipe dream cause is there anybody you know i don't care what their politics are with the exception of real nuts who does not think these the issue of these dreamers should be attended to. Well, I think that's almost one of the nobody. Problem, though there is a huge. Um... I don't think there is a huge. I think it's really on the margins. I think it's your friends, as you, you know, the people you you always talk about as having such colossal power, which in certain areas they do. The Fox Newses, the Rush Limbaugh's, all those people on the margin, a Sean Hannity. Who convinced Donald Trump, the great deal maker, that think, certain deals are not to be followed through? Those people are on the margin. I think those people are much more of, of, of mainstream now. I think the average—I don't have any proof of this—but I think the average supporter and 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 for example, Sean Hannity sycophant, if he or she was asked about people like this Rebecca, just called, I think they'd say that's an exception. Those people. We want to give a well, break, too. Well, we're not get. We haven't given them a I know, break. I know. Well, there are a lot of things, though, where the American people are in one place and uh, Congress or the president is another. We, you know, we know that. We have time for one Michael more, Michael in too. Framingham, thank you for calling. Hi, Michael. Hey, guys. Uh, you know, I just heard Rebecca. I'm, I'm Rebecca's neighbor. Um, and, you know, I'm hopeful about the election because, you know, after the election, we're going to be able to deport people like Rebecca. So, Michael, it's great. So, uh, yeah, it's, thank you for the call. And don't call us again anytime soon. Maybe 
not soon. Ted you know, in Brookline. You, you wonder what is wrong with. By the way, can I tell you something? For whatever it's worth, for people listening who don't like what I just did, if people we don't turn anybody away, we take calls in order. If people tell the truth about why they're calling, unless they're going to say something really horrible, I don't mean politically, but words that are unacceptable, we'll get on. He lied to the call to the call screen about what he intended to talk about, and we don't tolerate that here. So if you want to preach hate, but I do, at least say that's you what you wonder, want to talk about, and we'll have a conversation with you. what's going on with someone that thinks they should deport Rebecca. I don't think Keith, I think he was trying to make one of those ridiculous calls. I don't, oh, I don't, I don't I, believe well, that. I don't believe that. Well, we haven't done anything. She came here at three. Well, we ha- she sat Jim, in class with people. you interviewed a woman who was on television who had babies and was here since the time she who was three. American and citizens, they put her right. in handcuffs and let her off to the lockup. What are you talking that about? That was not somebody from Framingham. Those were ICE people or Customs and Border Enforcement people operating on orders of whoever it was from Jeff Sessions. That's not the Amer- I'm not defending the American people. They're in a bad place on a lot of issues, mm-hmm. like when they're applauding the mockery of uh, Christine Blasey Ford or that uh, when Trump was talking about body slamming a reporter the other night. They didn't. Put handcuffs on her. You had to have a federal judge, Mark Wolf, come in yes, and intervene show a video. and say that That's the right. government You're of the right. United States cannot be arresting and handcuffing people when they come to get documentations <coughs> for their marriage. And so, with all due respect, I, 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 I don't, ho- think, I hope you're ro- I don't ro- think he's um, unusual. We have time for this last one. Ted in Brookline, you're in Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for the call. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi. Um, I think it's uh, it's easy to be overwhelmed with uh, the way that this uh, president and, and his party is uh, running the running the country. But I think for our own good, we need to take channel that anxiety that we have and really use it for you know to take action for our good, for our own good, and for our kids' good. Because um, it really comes down these policies. People are disengaged about it. it's just policy, but it really these things affect our our. Um, our daily lives. The second point I wanted to make was that you, Jim, you said that you agreed with this voter that, you know, the American people will have spoken if the, if the Republicans win in this midterm election, mm-hmm. but we've got voter suppression. We've got gerrymandering. We've got stoking of fears That's true. with millions and millions of dollars of ads. And I don't think it's a fair representation of the American people, regardless of the outcome. Well, you know, I guess that's a great, uh, Ted, point. That's a great point. But I guess what I was reacting to is I can't handle this guy didn't say this. I can't handle another call saying Hillary Clinton got three million more votes. So she really won the election. Donald Trump figured out what the Electoral College meant and played by those rules. And I would argue in that case, he didn't campaign in a lot of places because he knew he wasn't going to win California or New York. So I guess I was reacting to what he didn't say. And you were totally right that what we've learned about in Georgia and some parts of the Midwest suggests it may not be legit at all. Ted, thanks for the call. Yeah, the Georgia thing, if people haven't read about it, it's just unconscionable that people, I mean, it's, it's classic voter suppression. 53,000 voters, 80% of whom are people of color. Yeah, and and uh, the, the race is neck and neck right now. Uh, and The governor's race. The governor's yeah. race is neck and neck. Stacey Abrams is the candidate, and she has been, talk about... Um, dignified and calm and arguing her side of things, which is you cannot disenfranchise all these people, but that's what they've done in Georgia. That's what they're trying to do is disenfranchise tens of thousands of people. Anyway, up next, under the Trump administration, transgender protections could be rolled back again. Chad Griffin, president of the Human Rights Campaign, joins us for that and more. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie. And the Trump administration is giving an entirely new meeting to identity politics. According to a memo obtained by the New York Times, the administration is urging government agencies to define sex as either, and this is a quote, male or female, unchangeable, and determined by the genitals that a person is born with. In response to this news, Chad Griffin, he's the president of the Human Rights Campaign, said, quote, setting a destructive precedent, the Trump-Pence administration intends to erase LGBTQ people from federal civil rights protections and eviscerate the enforcement of non-discrimination laws. Chad Griffin joins us here in Studio 3 to talk about this and about what brings him to Massachusetts today, which will be another threat to transgender protections. That's ballot question number three. Chad, great to meet you. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with telling people who don't know, what is uh, the Human Rights Campaign? What is it? What is it? The Human Rights Campaign is the nation's largest LGBTQ civil rights uh, organization in this country today. We have more than 3 million members uh, and supporters in every state and in every zip code uh, across this country fighting for equality. You know, uh, we're going to talk want to talk about what the president the Trump administration is proposing and then we'll get to question 3. Can you fill in some blanks? I mean, I gave the bare bones. What exactly do you think they're proposing? And the only hope well, this is not hopeful. The only sort of positive, I guess, that we were able to take away from it the other day is they don't really mean this. This is just an election ploy to get the hardcore uh, uh, Trump base out, and then it disappears. So tell us what it is and see if you – tell us if you buy that – I don't know if it's called optimism, whatever it is. Well, let me just say um, and put this in context. If you look at these last nearly two years of the Trump administration – Time and time again, they've attacked the LGBTQ community and transgender people especially, um, attack service members. Um, Donald Trump in a tweet attacked service members at a time when more than 15,000 transgender people are serving this country honorably and bravely. He attacked them. But the general stood up, which was a pretty positive moment. Some some folks, some uh, in his own world and some of his own generals did stand up. Uh, However, he's still trying. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump and Mike Pence are still trying to push this policy forward. Um, Then you had Betsy DeVos. Her first act as secretary of education uh, was to undermine protections for transgender students. Think about that for a minute. The Department of Education's whole purpose is to protect all students equally. And she chose as her first act to revoke guidance that extended protection to transgender students. So this is yet another effort by the Trump-Pence administration, and make no mistake about it, Mike Pence is central to every single one of these attacks on our community. This is yet another one. Um, The right-wing extremists have been asking for this for years. And so what the Trump administration has done through HHS, um, what has been leaked at least in the New York Times, is an attempt to redefine what sex is uh, in our federal civil rights laws, which would essentially erase transgender people from our civil rights protections uh, in this country. And so That's what, is, what they're trying to do. Do you think they are trying – I guess I'm trying to find a pebble in a sea of horrible yeah. boulders or something. Do you yeah. think they really want to do this or this is, again, just a bone for the crazies leading up to November 6th? I, I think that Donald Trump uh, and Mike Pence in particular have surrounded themselves with right-wing extremists, picking our opponents off the battlefield, putting them in charge 
uh, of our government. And these folks really do want to erase protections for transgender people. But I also do agree with you. I think there are some that see this as a cynical political play um, as we lead up to the midterm elections. But let me tell you, it won't work. And there are lessons that prove it. Look what happened to Pat McCrory in North Carolina when he attacked transgender people. We ousted him on Election Day. But, you know, one of the things, and and you would would certainly recall that right after Donald Trump won two years ago, there was a lot of writing about blaming the Democrats for their focus on identity politics. You know, we heard all about transgender rights. We heard all about civil rights. We heard all about um, everybody's rights except for the the straight white guy. And a lot of those middle-of-the-road Democrats thought, enough already with the identity politics. And that's why I think that some people would say this is that that there is some – political motivation here to say this is the Democrats, this is what they worry about, we're on the other side, we don't. Well, that's why I say I do think there's both politics at play here and a cynical attempt to perhaps excite a base, um, excite a base, just as Pat McCrory tried in 2016 to excite a base. Uh, It didn't work for Pat McCrory in North Carolina, and it won't work for Donald Trump and Mike Pence uh, this time uh, politically. And we will continue on the policy side uh, to fight these efforts uh, in the rollbacks. But first and foremost, um, we've got to turn out and to show up for the midterm elections. At the end of the day, that's how we fight this. That's how we succeed. And that's also why state level protections are so important. That's why ballot question three here in the state of Massachusetts is so important. Uh, it's, it's the most simple ballot question that's ever been before an electorate. Should we treat our transgender family, friends, and neighbors with dignity and equality under the law? That's what's before the voters of Massachusetts. And clearly the answer is yes to that. And by the way, just since some people get confused from time to time on ballot questions, we've discussed this ad nauseum, a yes would keep in place the protections that were passed by the legislature and signed by Governor Baker a couple of years ago. That's a right. no would repeal it. When you hear uh, – let's talk about question three for a second. You did a debate. I did a debate on television a couple of weeks ago, and I went to the website. And, and as I've said on the air here, I rarely take positions on ballot questions before, but the ads from the no side are so – disingenuous. Uh, uh, As we know, of course, there are all these men who are going to say they're women for a second so they can go in a bathroom and prey on uh, uh, people in the uh, women's room. Of course, that's a crime, so they can be prosecuted for that anyway, and they are. And I went to the website of the No People and looked at all of the, quote, examples, media examples of this. Not one of them, not one involved a transgender person. They went out to Washington State or wherever the hell they went. And so, however, it's, you know, even our governor who signed this last year in 2010, you mentioned this when we did the gubernatorial debate the other night, called it the bathroom bill when he was against it in 2010. There's an emotional draw to the other side. It's not fact-based, but there's an emotional. How do you you address that? Our our other side, they lose when it comes to facts. So they resort to scare tactics and to fear-mongering. Um, and this is something they've tried time and time again. They tried it in North Carolina. It didn't work. They tried it in Anchorage, Alaska, just a few months ago, to repeal protections in Anchorage. It didn't work in Anchorage, Alaska. I oh, I didn't tell us about that. And, it, and it's, because, it's because the voters are seeing through these scare tactics and these lies. You have every major law enforcement um, organization, including the Massachusetts Police Chief's Uh, association here in this state that support yes on three. And that's because it has nothing to do with committing crimes in restrooms. First of all, it's already, as you point out, it's illegal for anyone 
to commit a crime in a restroom. It is a ridiculous argument. This is about treating transgender people with equality and with dignity and respect under the law. Not giving anyone special rights, simply protecting everyone equally under the law. That's to, what Yes 3 is about. We're talking to Chad Griffin, the president of the Human Rights Campaign. Tell us about what happened in Alaska, because I don't know about it. I should, but I don't. So, so in, in Alaska, in some ways, that's where the right-wing extremists, sort of from their perspective, perfected the bathroom message more than a decade ago. They were pushing this uh, in Anchorage in a vote of the people to attempt to repeal protections. And each time they did... Um, in Anchorage, um, the, the city council, the governing body there in Anchorage, moved forward and would put them forth again. That just happened again, I think it was about six months ago. Um, I was in Anchorage with a bipartisan coalition and business coalition, just like we see here in Massachusetts. Did you see Russia from there? And I, I didn't. I didn't okay, see I it. I didn't see it. Um, I know Sarah Palin does, she, she but does, yeah. yeah, she, she does. Vision, but the voters, uh, and that is not a progressive leftist you know, state, a bipartisan coalition of voters, Republican, independent, and Democrat alike, stood up and rejected these fear tactics in Anchorage, Alaska. And today, Anchorage still has these protections. And I believe that that's what the good, fair-minded voters of Massachusetts are going to do. Well, you know what I always think from the education front? If you have uh, a, 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 in a school a boy's bathroom and a girl's bathroom, the the if you are a, 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 you're going into a bathroom where you look like someone if you are a transgender person who doesn't belong there you know so that child will be in such a d- dangerous situation you know if and if you force people to go into the opposite bathroom of what they feel they are you're you're making a critical point the people who are actually in danger are the transgender young people who would be forced uh, into a place of being unsafe. Yeah. That, that's who's really at risk. Uh, and that's why these protections exist. They are common sense protections. And let me tell you, as I've traveled all across this country and meet with transgender young people in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, this is not controversial in these schools. This is not controversial amongst our young people. It's not even a question it's these right-wing conservative hate mongers that try to force this unconscionably as an issue for them to gain political ground or turn out their base or in some cases raise money so that they can keep doing uh, what they do. And increasingly, they have been losing time and time again, and I believe that's what will happen here in Massachusetts. Can I disagree with you slightly, uh, Chad Griffin, on that? I, I, a lot of them are the deplorables, but people – all of us are scared of things we don't understand, and in uh, and many of us don't know or haven't come in contact with transgender. When you mentioned young people before, I thought we've had this discussion a thousand times. A regular guest on our show for almost all nineteen years we've been on the air has been Sue O'Connell, who ah. publishes Bay Windows. Right. And when we talked to Sue about this is um, fifteen years ago, there was a poll in the New York Times on gay marriage. And only two segments of the population supported gay marriage at the time. It was well under 50%, unlike now. Uh, young people, like you just mentioned, and people who said, I know a gay couple. Right. And my sense is that transgender acceptance is going to go through the same uh, kind of thing. Uh, Correct. Later today, I know you're appearing with Laverne Cox. I'm an That's interviewer right. for TV tonight. You see Laverne Cox, that changes something. You read about Christine Halquist, if that's how you pronounce her name, who a transgender person who's running for uh, a governor of Vermont on the Democratic ticket. You don't know them, but you do know them to a degree. And so, and that to me breaks down, I think, the fear of people who are not 
hate mongers, but people who just are being exposed to something that's different and maybe scary for the first time. Is that not a fair statement? I I think it's an absolute fair statement. You're absolutely right. When I am talking about the far-right hate mongers, I'm talking about those who are pushing this issue at the school board level or pushing this at the ballot uh, like like you're seeing here in Massachusetts or like we saw um, in in North Carolina and and in Alaska. There is no question. Fair-minded folks all across this country are realizing that they too know someone that is not just lesbian, gay, or bisexual, or queer, but also transgender. That these folks are our next-door neighbors, they're our fellow congregants at church on a Sunday morning, they're our colleagues at work, and just fighting as, wars. Yes, exactly right. Fighting, bravely fighting wars all across, um, all across the globe. Transgender people are people, human beings just like everyone else, and they should be treated equally just like everyone else. Okay, can we talk about you for a minute? I read that you were like 11 when you started working in the White House. No, <laughs> so I'm that serious. Was, that was six years ago. Well, no, was, huh, what were you, huh. like 19 when you start working in the ni- West Wing for Bill Clinton? Uh, f- from the time I was 19 through my 21st birthday. How did that – how did – you get in the White House at 19. You know, I got very lucky. I grew up as a as a young person in the Deep South. My governor at the time started running for president, and You're I started Arkansas? volunteering. I grew up I grew up in Arkansas. Grew up in a small town in the Deep South. So what was that? Uh, what was the? I mean, I, were you there for Donut? Well, you were if you were there in the beginning. You're up well, for the for Donut well, Hotel. Well, and if How'd you think about if you think about growing up, you know, in Arkansas, I didn't even realize that I knew another LGBTQ person. Mm-hmm. And this goes to your point about changing hearts and minds. Uh, I came out very late in life. I was in my late twenties before I had the courage to be able to stand up and come out. These young people today are so much more yeah. brave and have so much more courage than I ever had. Young people, some of whom will be speaking at this press conference later today with Laverne Cox and with other activists, people like you know Sarah McBride who came out you know in college, um, young people today who I meet who are coming out in fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade, uh, they are brave. They're the ones that are changing these hearts and minds and changing the minds of adults. So, but get to my question for a second. How did you feel you're there, you're not out at this stage, and uh, the guy who you supported is the President of the United States, and fairly early on, Don't Ask, Don't Tell emerges. What was your Yeah, reaction? and, you know, Don't Ask, Don't Tell at the time, it was one of those situations where one side was pushing a ban on the military, mm-hmm. um, another side was pushing for full open surface uh, service, and there was this moderate, you know, compromise uh, in the middle that ideally would have never happened. Uh, ideally, it would have been full and complete open service. Um, and again, I was still closeted at age 19, 20, and 21. Um, it was an unfair policy then. Thank goodness it's gone today. We're talking to Chad Griffin, who's head of the Human uh, Rights Campaign. You know, I wonder, growing up in Arkansas, because you think of Arkansas as the Deep South, pretty uh, very uh, Baptist down yeah, there and Southern stuff. Baptist. And, and Pence is always talking about being an evangelical, and you have a lot of evangelicals that are pushing this kind of stuff. Have you had conversations uh, with people who I – because I'm, I'm sort of surprised at how white evangelicals, much more than black evangelicals, have taken these very, um, you know, anti-Christian kind of positions yeah. in terms of acceptance and forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. When you have those conversations, what do people say? You know, growing up in the Deep South, I, I went to a Southern Baptist church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and when mom got her way Wednesday night too. That was a lot of church. Yeah. And <laughs> – the lessons that I learned of love thy neighbor and that we are all God's children, it is so counter to what you hear today coming from so many of the far right so-called 
you know, evangelical uh, Christians. They are not consistent uh, in their positions. Um, and what I hope, as you are seeing more and more young people rise in some of these religious institutions across the country, I believe that they too will change or they risk going out of business. And well, aren't I, young evangelicals very gay-friendly? Young evangelicals, so today, it's interesting, there's a lot of research that shows the majority of evangelicals under the age of 30 in the Deep South support marriage equality. Yeah. The majority of them support common sense, non-discrimination protections, like what we're talking about here with, you know, ballot question three uh, in Massachusetts. And so, yes, young people are there. But it's everyone that is over 30 and those that are in the middle that we are still working to change hearts and change minds so that we can provide equal protections all across this country. You know, Chad Griffin, you mentioned earlier, I don't know what the context was about how important the midterms are. Yeah. Uh, you have three million members. I assume they're not monolithic. Obviously, they share some concerns. So what kind of a voting block, if at all, are your members? Well, I, I appreciate that question. And it's not just our three million members. It's in the last election. This is often overlooked in the Beltway and partly because LGBT people are excluded from the United States census. But if you look at exit polls in the 2016 election, 5% of the electorate identified as LGBTQ. That means 7 million voters. That's larger than the margin of victory in every presidential election, I think, since 1984. That also, by the way, means 5% of the electorate came out of the polling station in a swing state and told a stranger they were LGBTQ. So 5% of the electorate, we're more than 10 million eligible voters in this country today. We are focused like a laser in turning out that voting block in key districts and key states uh, all across this country. Because when we turn out, we win elections. Is that real or is that hope? I mean, there are it, log cabin Republicans, there are conservative uh, 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 gay Republicans. I mean, so in, I, I think the research shows that Donald Trump got just over 10 percent of that. Oh, vote. Is that so? Um, just over 10 percent of that vote. He got the smallest margin of the LGBTQ vote um, than any presidential election uh, in in recent times. And I think it's because that folks didn't believe uh, the lies that he was saying during the election that he would stand up for the LGBTQ community, as he struggled to say. You know, I've been reading some of the emails, as I do during the show, and uh, people are asking the question. I actually asked when we had the, the, the transgender woman who was six foot four, very tall. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the question is, if you, and these are people who claim they're not, you know, trying to take away anybody's rights, but because women are so often the victims of sexual assault, that they are, what, what do you say when they say, well, I'm, I'm fine, I want everyone to have their rights, but it does scare me if I go into the bathroom and I see the foot next to me is a size 15, like the uh, transgender woman that we had in here, looks like a very big person, and they jump to the conclusion that, that is a man, the next doll, and in fact, it's a transgender woman. What do you tell those people? I say that transgender people are human beings, just like all of us, LGBTQ, straight. We are all human beings. We all look different. We all come in different sizes and in different colors and sexual orientations and gender identities. We're all humans. And you know why we all go into the bathroom? To use the bathroom. <laughs> it's that simple. And it is illegal for anyone, LGBT or straight, to go in the bathroom and commit a crime. This is a scare tactic from our opponents. Don't believe it. Don't buy it. It's why law enforcement is standing up. It's why the business community, more than a thousand businesses, standing up, urging voters in this state uh, to vote yes uh, on three.
Where is your event and when is your event? Um, it's just down the street at the um, at the center um, here at uh, at one o'clock. So just around the corner with so Laverne Cox and, and, and other activists. We have a press conference urging voters to turn out uh, here in the state. Great. November 6th. Great to meet you, Chad. Thank Thanks you. So Chad, much. thank nice you very Thanks much for, for having me on. We appreciate your time. Chad Griffin is the president of the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest national lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer civil rights organization in the country. Thanks again, Chad, for coming in. And by the way, again, Laverne Cox will be with me on similar subjects tonight at 7 o'clock and on Greater Boston. From Orange is the New Black. She's a big I'm star really from Orange is the New Black. And a hero knows. to our movement. Yes. I'm really excited. Coming I was up. excited to meet you, too, but you're no Laverne no, Cox. No, I am no Laverne Cox. That's for sure. Coming up, we're going to talk to MIT economist Jonathan Gruber about some incredible breakthroughs in treating rare diseases. But the problem is the tremendous cost of the drugs that can uh, treat those diseases. We're going to talk to him about pricing drug policy. Up next, you're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. At noon on today's Boston Public Radio, with the midterms approaching, President Trump is using the caravan to stoke fears about foreigners and crime, saying criminals and unknown Middle Easterners are mixing into the crowd, though he admits he has no proof. National security expert Juliet Kayyem is here to talk about who's really coming, what's driving 7,000 Central Americans to continue their push, and what the president is getting wrong. From there, MIT economist John Gruber joins us to talk about what could give Big Pharma the jitters, the Democrats sweeping the House in the upcoming midterms. Then WGBH executive arts editor Jared Bowen joins us to talk about the latest disruptor in the art world. Is it a bag of gum, artificial intelligence, or all of the above? Tune in to find out. Then Boston Globe columnist Alex Beam is here to talk about the squirrel census <laughs> and a bunch of other things, including the Museum of the Bible. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie and Here with us in Studio 3 to make sense of the dollars and cents of drug pricing from what could be at stake for Big Pharma if the Democrats sweep the midterms, at least in the House, to advances in gene therapies, which have the side effect of sticker shock, as Jonathan Gruber. John's a Ford professor of economics at MIT, and he was instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts healthcare reform and the Affordable Care Act. John Gruber, it's good to see you. Good to be here. Great to talk to you, uh, John Gruber. So <clears throat> we talked to our medical ethicist, uh, Art Kaplan, earlier this week about a proposal to put the price of drugs on all these TV ads uh, so that we're bombarded with all the time. Does that make sense? I mean, I guess so, but it's not going to do a whole lot of good. Uh, prices are complicated. It's hard to even know what a price of a drug is, given all the discounts. You have to remember that it's not as simple as, you know, 
a company makes a drug, it goes to the pharmacy, they sell it to you. There's a lot of middlemen along the way. In particular, these, there are these things called pharmacy benefit managers, which essentially stand between the drug companies and the pharmacies. They're sort of middlemen purchasers, and they're very non-transparent in how they essentially get discounts from the manufacturers and pass those discounts on to consumers. So I think even the manufacturers don't quite frankly know what the drug's going to cost the consumer. You know, I, I hope uh, – uh, I'm a big transparency person with a however at the end of the sentence. Right. I hope I say what I said to Art the other day and don't change my position. Let's I hope no one's paying attention. I think what I said the other day, which is what I currently believe, is, well, I'm always pro-transparency. I worry about the impact of this for a couple of reasons. One, because the price on the TV screen is your suggest- may not be the real price. Obviously, there's insurance, the variations, et cetera. And secondly, I worry that when someone knows they have a particular ailment, and uh, they hear that's the drug for the ailment and it costs $17,000, uh, they may say, uh, you know, I'm going to cross my fingers or pray or something, may even discourage them from letting their doctor and them or their healthcare professional and them make a decision. So I worry that the downside may be worse than just, well, I don't know if it's going to help that much. Am, am, am I on to something or no? I, I think you are. That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. That's a great point. You know, I sort of viewed it as, eh, can't hurt. But actually, you make a good point. I guess it could hurt if people see that number and get scared off from getting treatment they need. So I think that's absolutely right. I think it's really just it's, – it's a sideshow. It's a distraction from really addressing the fundamental problems the system faces. Why do you think he's doing – I mean, we're going to talk to you a little bit later about what happens if the Democrats take the House in terms of a potential Trump-Democratic uh, uh, bonding over the drug thing. We've talked to you about how as a candidate – he was uh, going to allow the importation of Canadian drugs. He was going to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. He had that early meeting, I think it was even as early as January of his first year, 17, with the pharmaceutical guys, and he did a total 180 in a nano. Second, why is the Trump administration even arguing for transparency here, do you think? Well, I mean, I think it's a good talking point. Uh, yeah. You know, basically, look, my understanding is there are very dedicated, smart people thinking in the right way about these issues within the Trump administration. I hear a lot of respect for Alex Azar. Oh, the HHS. Really? Yeah, I hear a lot of respect for Scott Gottlieb, the chairman of the, the mm-hmm. head of the FDA. I think they are trying to see what they can do within the constraints that this this Republican policy puts on them. So I admire their thinking about it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't do a lot. It, it, it might do harm. If you could design – I'm sorry to stay on this just one more second. If you could design a transparency thing around drug pricing – it would actually be usable and not scary and whatever. Could you construct something or is it just too complex for mere mortals to get? I, I, I think it is really complex and I think that the key role here has to be played by the pharmacist. Uh, one other idea that's been floated by the Trump administration, which I like, is you know, n- no laws which – you know, sort of mandating pharmacists to su- substitute generics when they can uh, – but I, I think the pharmacist is sort of an underutilized asset in our healthcare mm-hmm. system. It's the first point of contact for many people with the healthcare system for much of the time. And I think pharmacists can play a much larger role, but they're, they're not uh, allowed to by law and they're not incented to by, uh, by reimbursement policy. And so I think that's someplace we could really make a difference. Well, 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 you just mentioned the generic thing. I keep saying last thing, but just uh, on that front, does I should know this. Does a pharmacist if – if a doctor or a nurse writes a prescription – excuse me, for a brand name drug, can the pharmacist unilaterally or with your permission substitute a generic lower cost? Uh, It varies by state, but in some states, the pharmacists uh, actually are are mandated to consider that. In in other cases, they can. In other cases, they they, they can or, or, or they may do it or may not do it. 
But I think that, you know, generic use has gone up a lot in America. We've made a lot of progress on that, but it's still not as high as it should be. And what people don't realize is a generic for the vast majority of cases is identical and has identical side effects, et cetera. It's, it's chemically identical. Uh, so I think we should have even higher of generic substitution rates. We're talking to Jonathan Gruber, MIT economist. Jonathan, um, a lot of exciting stuff going on with gene therapy. But before you tell us about the price and all that, for those of us who didn't, you know, kind of not that good in this, what is gene therapy? So basically, gene therapy is not any one thing. But the basic idea is many rare diseases in particular uh, uh, affect us. So you think about a cystic fibrosis, a hemophilia, for example, a disease we've heard of and hundreds we haven't heard of, uh, essentially affect us by altering our genetic structure. And until now, it's been tough luck. There's nothing you can do about that. That's the genetic structure. What cell and gene therapies are doing are essentially trying to fix our genetic structure. So for one example, <clears throat> one example that they're thinking of is you essentially take a healthy version of a gene, you inject inside a virus, and you inject that virus inside the body. The virus spreads in the body and replaces the bad gene with the healthy oh my gene. God. The newest technology is called CRISPR, where right. essentially you go and you slice up the DNA and essentially replace the bad parts with good parts. These are all a bit science fiction-y and a bit sort of uh, ahead of the curve, but they're coming. Right now, uh, there's about 350 cell and gene therapies in, in the pipeline uh, that, w that may come online in the next four or five years, and they're miraculous. I mean, let's be clear. We're talking about diseases which are horrific, which uh, kill people, and make their lives miserable, and we can cure them. I mean, these are miracle cures. Well, the, uh, the other thing I read, in, in, at least in some of these cases, is that you can do a once, uh, tr one treatment and, and avoid having this you know, chronic treatment that goes on for years, too, in some of these cases. The, the, that's absolutely, that's what makes it exciting and scary, which is uh, what's exciting. So you take something like... Um, uh, th there's a company in Boston working on a cure for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. It's a horrible disease which basically disables you by age five and kills you by age 20. I mean, just terrible, terrible stuff. And they may have a cure for it. Uh, and literally, you're treated and you're done and you're better for the rest and you're better for the rest of your life. That's I mean, horrible. it is literally a medical miracle. So the good news is these things are, uh, I wouldn't say coming into fashion, but at right. least they're breaking some. Some uh, uh, they're making great strides. The bad news is some of them cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, the bad news is we don't really know how to price them. So let's take this Duchenne's muscular dystrophy case because that's the one I've thought about most recently. I don't know what it's going to cost to invent this drug to make it. What I do know is if you take a typical calculation of the value of life, the kind of thing we have to do all the time to make hard policy decisions, and apply it to this drug, it's worth about $10 million. Okay. Now, wait, wait, wait. how is that a Because it's a mean? child. Because you're saving a yes. child's life. Oh, a typical, oh, okay, you're basically okay. saving a child. Well, okay. first of all, you're you're improving. You're, you're you're getting rid of 20 years of horrible suffering, and you're adding potentially okay. another 60 years yeah. of life. And by typical estimates, we use typical estimates are between 100 and 200 thousand dollars for another healthy year of life. That that's about 10 million dollars. Now, it clearly doesn't cost anything like that to make the drug, but it may cost, I don't know what it costs. It could cost $100,000. It's still going to be expensive to make the drug. Let's say it costs $100,000 to make the drug or $200,000. Where between that and $10 million do you set the price? The drug companies could argue, look, it's worth $10 million. We're saving a life. Advocates could say, that's not fair. You're making money. It only costs you $100,000 to make. Why are you going to charge a million dollars for it? But, you know, it's funny. I was talking to my daughter about this the other day and she's saying, that's not fair. I said, well, 
when we buy my, Microsoft Office for $100, that costs Microsoft $0 to make. We don't get up in arms mm -hmm. saying, that's not fair. It's $100. It costs them $0 to make. It's the same thing. Companies invest in research and development, and then they make that up by charging above their marginal costs down the road. So it really becomes, this becomes the enormous challenge going forward, is what do you do with these drugs that are miraculous that affect a relatively small number of people? Only about 10,000 people have this disease in America right now. So you can't spread the R&D costs right. far and wide. How do you address that? And that's, that's the enormous challenge well, you going talk forward. About that. You talk about that, that ha needing this framework to figure out yeah. how, to, how to value this stuff. So, I mean, that is fascinating, too. Would you have some committee or how well, would you well, actually? So well, how I would argue you? it's scary because you're talking about that kid who's young, who's worth a hundred, whatever, a hundred thousand. Let's assume the affliction, the disease that this rare drug is fixing, only applies to uh, uh, older, poor people. You know, low-income right. people who don't get decent well, nutrition, who are unlikely to be fully employed or less. Pre I mean, that's a little scary, well, uh, isn't well, it? Well, uh, okay, okay. So let, let's back up. You're going fast. I mean, you're raising good issues, but let's let's start with Marjorie's question. This is done in other countries. So the, uh, the euphemistically named NICE in England mm -hmm. the, uh, actually does these kind of calculations based on cost of the, <laughs> the value of the improvement of life and says what drugs are worth. And now that, that actually has regulatory power in the UK. We don't have that. But we do have in the US a nonprofit organization called ICER. And what ICER does is similar calculations for drugs. And they've actually had a big influence. They've actually put pressure on drug companies when they're making drugs which actually don't, uh, don't actually add that much value to actually price them more appropriately. So, so these calculations are done. Now, Jim, you make a separate point, which is, first of all, let's do like a kid versus an old person. Now, that basically we have to decide as a society, are we going to think about the way the things the way The Economist does, which is basically inventing a drug to save an 80-year-old, to extend an 80-year-old's life by 10 years, is worth much, much less. Well, let me make it harder. That's the death panel. A, a, a disease that affects uh, an average eight-year-old as compared to a disease that mostly affects low-income eight-year-olds who have le are less likely to have the same earning power think, in their lives. I, I, what do you do I, about I, that? On that one, I think there's no country in the world, and I don't think any ethicist that's not on the far right, that wouldn't say you should ignore that. I mean, basically, you do by years of life, but you I don't. See. It's it's too hard to judge. I mean, y yes, technically, you know, in some theoretical economic model, if you want to be really technical, you might consider that. But I don't think I don't think anybody's suggesting that. But I don't think it's unreasonable to think about. So, but here's the hard issues. Let let's let's take your issue. That's not quite as hard as your issue, but a different one. Let's take a drug. So there's a drug, Kaleidico, uh, uh, I think it's called, which vastly improves the quality of life of CF patients. CF patients, basic, CF? Uh, cystic, cystic fibrosis, fibrosis. fibrosis okay. patients have terrible, it's terribly burdensome. This drug massively reduces the uh, consequences of cystic fibrosis, but doesn't keep you alive much longer. So it's a quality of life. So thing. it's a quality That's, those of life, but not a year's of life. Those are the ones who have to calm their lungs yeah, to exactly. get all the gunk off exactly. their lungs. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a quality of life, but not a year's of life. Now, so, so how do you weigh something which adds 10 years of a mediocre life versus doesn't add life but improves the quality. These are really hard issues. And but the, the blindness issues, drug that, that Luxterna, a lot of people the one talk we talked about, about that. Yeah. Luxterna is the first, the first true gene therapy is Luxterna, which essentially fixes a particular genetic form of blindness, and it costs $850,000. Now, how do we think about that? It's not saving life, but it's vastly improving the quality of life. The frameworks that organizations like NICE and ICER use 
can put values on those things. I don't know what they have for Luxterna, but you know, it gets a bit scary. Uh, but at this other time, it's not a choice to ignore it. W there's no market to set these prices. There's no, there's no effective market when you have a, a, something which costs $100,000 to produce and is worth 10 million. There's nothing in between to determine where that price should be. We need a framework to do that. And if governments could, you know, government ideally provide that framework, but not the private sector is going to have to figure out how to but do But don't we also need a framework uh, to deal with drugs that have wider application that the yeah. Shrellies of the world make, that this the EpiPens of the world make and so, all that? This is one right here in Louisiana that you're so involved with. Hepatitis. Let's talk about what you're doing, so, Louisiana. So, so, it's so, so let's talk exciting. about hepatitis C. Here's, a, here's an example. It's not a cell We've all supposedly therapy. got hepatitis C. I see those ads all the time. <laughs> do you have hepatitis C? Do you know? Supposedly know. baby boomers all have baby hepatitis boomers. So, so basically hepatitis C is a chronic disease that essentially destroys your liver and kills you. Um, it's uh, millions of Americans, baby boomers in particular, have this disease. Uh, Why? Do you know? Uh, it, a lot of it, it's basically, think of it as sort of past in many ways the HIV is. So it's intravenous drug use, it's unprotected sex, it's things like that. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's basically a blood-transmitted disease, okay. like, like HIV. It's, so it's, it's, um, it, and basically, this is a disease which essentially, once you had like HIV, uh, essentially was a chronic burden you had to live with. And we could sort of treat it and kind of keep you alive, but eventually your sort of liver, your liver d decayed. We didn't have as effective treatments as we have for HIV, for example. And then, a few years ago, they invented a cure. I mean, they literally, uh, the most pop famous ones, uh, Gilead Savaldi, was a drug that you took for 12 weeks and it was gone. You suddenly, instead of living with this chronic disease burden the rest of your life, were healthy. And so then the question was, well, what's that worth? So basically, uh, Savaldi came out and priced it $84,000, which by any measure is a bargain. So what happened was, it's actually a funny story, I got a call from a reporter saying I was speaking to the head of Health and Human Services in Louisiana, and she told me that they're crushed with the cost of Savaldi. And I said, well, tell her to shut up. It's a miracle drug. It's a bargain at any price. So an hour later, she called me and said, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. We can't afford it. So actually, I've become part of a team in Louisiana that's trying to actually figure out an innovative way to pay for curing hep C. Because there's a benefit. Also, if you just hear a few, few people, you can get reinfected. So you want to actually cure it. It's like, like polio. You want to wipe it out. And then you don't have to worry about it. So what we're doing is we're actually creating an innovative way where there's a couple of manufacturers. These They're called DAAs, uh, Drugs to Cure Hep C, a couple DAA manufacturers. And we're literally saying to them, we want your bid for wiping out this disease. That is not price per unit. You give us as many units as it takes to wipe out uh, Hep C in Louisiana. In return, we'll give you the whole market. We'll let you provide all those drugs, but you have to give us one fixed price. It's called a subscription model. And so far, the, the manufacturers have seemed very interested in doing this at a very reasonable price, and it's incredibly exciting. Is and that by being the done way, in any other case? In any other? Uh, Washington State's uh, sort of about six months behind Louisiana. And just one more thing. Would this have, if this works, which sounds fabulous, yeah. would it have broader applicability? Could it? There's, th this is, is actually could have broader applicability. Now, this is in some sense the e – we started with the hard case. This is the easier case. Why is these it easier? These are poor people too, a these lot are, of them, these, oh, these and are people in prison. It's, it's mostly – more than half people with hep C are on Medicaid or in corrections facilities. Uh -huh. Now, th why is this an easier case? It's an easier case because the state of Louisiana currently spends $35 million a year treating these people. So they sort of say, look, if we can essentially do this for $35 million a year or less, we're saving money. That's unlike these new gene therapies where they're spending zero right. now. The people just die. So, so it, is, it is in some sense an easier case, which is as long as Louisiana can do this for $35 million or less, it's a win. 
even if they do it for more, it's a win because they're saving a lot. You know, they make people's better life better off. So in some sense, but the problem is right now, the only way they afford it is by only treating the very, very sickest people with hep C. They want to say, let's stop treating the sickest people. Let's treat everyone, but let's do it for an affordable amount. And they, just so I understand this, uh, the, the, what's in it for the manufacturer is they get the exclusive. They, they, it, what's in it for the manufacturer is the marginal cost of producing another, hep, another DAA is like 100 bucks. So they make lots of money. I see. Okay. They get the market. They it. also get the good press That's for great. curing this disease. Um, now, will they? But it's a trade-off for them. On the other hand, if the whole country goes to this, they may lose money. Uh, so so it, it, there's a complicated dance going on between the I, I, I got to say, honestly, the manufacturers have been more forthcoming and positive about this than I would have guessed. And I, I think we're very optimistic we can make something work. We're talking to uh, John Gruber from MIT. So, John, there was a story Marjorie and I read. We, Marjorie was a little anxious earlier in the show. We were talking about whether or not this blue wave is about to become a red tide instead. But that's for not, that was for earlier in the show. Assuming there is a blue wave, I hate the expression, assuming the Democrats win the House of Representatives, there is some conjecture that one of the issues on which uh, the House Democrats and Donald Trump could work, because Trump has flirted with taking on Big Pharma from time to time, even though he's backed off, is uh, is uh, uh, drug pricing reform or drug buying reform. One, do you believe that's possible? And two, if you think it is, what are the areas in which it's reasonable to think there might be some common ground? Well, I mean, I think most people who have made deals with Donald Trump over the last several decades have lived to regret it. So I'm I, 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 I'm not sure that the Democrats, you know, I, I, I feel a bit it's it's a bit like a Lucy pulling the ball away from Charlie Brown that, you know, I feel like they're going to make this deal and then it'll get pulled away at the last minute. So I think obviously they'll be very careful. That said, it is in some sense a bipartisan issue. And Trump has said good things about it. And as I said, he has people in his administration doing good things about it. So I like to think this is an area that progress could be made. Like what? Well, that's the problem. Like what? I mean, Chuck Grant, what I read was Orrin Hatch is the key person in the Senate Finance Committee, which will stay Republican realistically. He's retiring, likely to replace him as the guy we've seen every day on television who's chair of the Judiciary Committee. Chuck Grassley, who apparently is one who in his career has supported the importation of drugs from Canada. So he seems to have a semi-enlightened view on this thing. I mean, the importation of drugs for Canada, I think, is fine. I mean, I mean, I think obviously there's some safety issues, there's some regulatory issues we need to work out. But I think that's fine. But I think that's not... That, I mean, at least small. he's open to some... He's open right. to it. I, I, I think that basically what we're going to need to do to get serious about this is to figure out a way to, A, get more people substituting towards generics where possible... But B, I think you're going to need to think about more seriously a richer regulatory framework that recognizes there's no real private market solution to pricing these drugs. And and I, the problem is I don't see Trump going there. So I, I guess I don't I, – importations, one way you can go. Shifting with generics, another way you can go. There's things you can do on the margin. But if you really want to make a difference, you've got to skip to more fundamental change in the framework which is going to involve a bigger regulatory role. And I don't know if the Trumps are going to be willing to go there. We only have a couple of minutes left, Jonathan Gruber from MIT. But I think I read somewhere, you just talked about the subscription service in Louisiana, yeah. like a Netflix kind of thing. Didn't I read it is like a Netflix somewhere thing, of this yeah. preparation about uh, uh, selling drugs like a mortgage payment? So this is so um, uh, this is another idea. Actually, a pioneer, this is a colleague of mine at MIT, Andy Lowe, who's a brilliant finance professor. And uh, his, he came up with an idea that people are talking more about, which is essentially, here's the problem. Let's say, Marjorie, there's a drug to – let's say you know, we find out you've got hep C, unfortunately, Marjorie, and it's $84,000 to cure it, and your insurer pays it, and the next year you leave your insurer. Well, then they don't get any of the benefit of curing it and all the cost. 
So insurers have a disincentive to invest in actually buying these drugs and curing people. The mortgage idea would be that if you go to another insurer, they have to pay back the first insurer for some of the costs that you uh, that you bore, which is pretty that cool. That sounds fair. It, it, it sounds fair. It's, it's a little bit dicey to follow people and make those payments reality. But I think that basically um, there's some there's some other folks at MIT. There's something called the New Digs Initiative at MIT where they're trying to work with private insurers in Massachusetts to try to do this where the insurers at least would agree among them that as people move across insurers, they would pay each other back for the initial cost of the drug. So I think the mortgage model has a lot of promise. It's an innovative model. I, I think there's directions we could go. But once again, without the government getting involved, given that a lot of these people cycle on and off government programs, the question is, how can the government get involved? And I think if Trump's willing to be open to a more regulatory framework to this, then I think there is progress to be made. I don't think he's been big on regulations overall. Well, that's why I'm worried about the football. Yeah. John the Gruber, well, thank you. He, yeah, but, but the flip side, without the, the speculating on the politics, the Democrats are going to want to make a deal on something because they don't. if they take the House, they don't want to go two years yeah. just saying all we did was stop the worst of Trump. They want something affirmative. And the reality is, as you said, other than, than pandering to the pharmaceutical companies, I don't mean to minimize right. the importance of that to a lot of conservatives, everybody is affected by this so, in the country, so every single family. I don't mean to end on a negative note, but here's why I'm more pessimistic than yeah. you, which is the state of Massachusetts had a very innovative proposal, which was essentially to say for Medicaid patients where there's a substitute drug that's as good as what they take, we should be allowed to force them to, into that cheaper substitute drug, which is illegal under Medicaid currently. And the Trump administration denied it. Why? There is no reason other than pandering the drug companies. And that's why I am not as confident as you that the Trump administration will want to make a deal. Well, now I'm not anymore either. Sorry. Okay, that John, takes care of that. To see that was really interesting. <laughs> that's why they call it the dismal science. Yeah. I, I'm glad I learned something about gene therapy, Jonathan Gruber. Thank you very much. You bet. Jonathan Gruber is the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. He was instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts Healthcare Reform and the Affordable Care Act. He's also a BPR contributor. Thanks again, Jonathan. We're going to be joined by Juliet Kayyem. She's going to give us the latest on the suspicious devices sent to the home of George Soros, the Democratic fundraiser, Hillary Clinton, the office of Barack Obama, and the offices in New York City of CNN. Juliet Kayyem next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie again. Uh, joining us online to go over the latest national security headlines, including something that's happening at our own television station, CNN. From White House staffers throwing punches to President Trump pulling his with Saudi Arabia's national security expert, Juliet Kayyem. Juliet's on the faculty of Harvard University as Kennedy School, an analyst, as I said, for CNN and CEO of Zemcar. Hey there, Juliet. Hey, Julia. Hi, how are you? Fine. Okay. So we've been watching all the uh, staff at CNN ro yeah. roaming the streets outside of the Manhattan offices because of the suspicious device. As we understand, you give us the update. It was delivered to CNN to John Brennan, apparently with Debbie Wasserman Schultz's return address, also delivered to the home of uh, Hillary Clinton, George Soros, and to the offices of Barack Obama. So what, if anything more, do we know? <laughs> Well, you have, at least right now, four locations of suspicious packages or bombs um, 
and uh, one theme, I think it's safe to say, which is the targeted, uh, the intended targets are um, either media institutions that are unloved by uh, uh, certain members of the right or, or prominent Democrats. So, you know, some, you know, we're very careful about saying, you know, whether these things in fact are linked. There's going to be forensic evidence. There's going to be digital evidence and uh, and other things that will likely link them. But I don't want to be, you know so smart that I'm stupid, right? You know, in other words, like sometimes if it quacks like a duck, it actually is a duck. So you're going to go from the theory right now, from the investigation side, that this is a, uh, a, a targeted uh, uh, attack on major sort of democratic or left-wing, viewed as left-wing institutions. And then that's, a, that's you know, a federal investigation and because uh, Hillary Clinton, who is also, let's not forget, married to a former president, uh, as well as the Obamas, um, you know, you are going to also have uh, terrorism uh, behind that in terms of, uh, you know, uh, of motivation to silence uh, political um, thought so, uh, or political activity. So that's sort of where it is right now. I know you guys are watching and I'm in the studio right now that they've, you know, vacated New York City's offices. It seems like they cleared the bomb squad and we're just waiting for, you know, a 1245 uh, press conference and then I'll be on air after that. So, you know, that's what we know right now. But it, it, it uh, one theme animates this right now. And so let's not be so careful that we're not willing to say it, which is, you know, obviously this is someone who has a, a focus on uh, a perceived, uh, you know, left wing and, and Democratic leader, leaders. And by the way, we didn't say who John Brennan was, former head of the CIA, who's oh, been sorry. very critical yeah. of uh, Donald yeah. Trump. And I should is, say, and that is a, go ahead. That's a mistake. You know, he has a contract with NBC and MSNBC. So, you know, someone, you know, the, you know whoever might have been sophisticated enough to plan this is not so sophisticated that they uh, uh, did a little bit of research. You would know, one would know that Brennan was on NBC. Um, but also remember, Brennan is the um, person that Donald Trump. Uh, very publicly said that he was going to rescind his yeah. security clearance uh, for his criticism for John Brennan's criticisms of Donald Trump, which have been quite caustic. Um, uh, we have learned in in um, news pretty legitimate news reporting that it was you know John Brennan who had been pushing McConnell and others uh, in the in the lead up to the election in 2016 to take the Russia threat. Um, more seriously. Uh, and uh, so John Brennan is well known in um, in circles as someone who is anti-Trump. Uh, uh, um, I should say one more thing. We have not heard from the president yet. Well, actually, I actually, I was yeah, about to interrupt Times. you. We have. Here's oh. the tweet. 27 minutes ago, Vice President Pence tweeted. Oh. No, we could, and by the way, this Vice shouldn't president. be something that we have to celebrate because obviously this is what should be said, we condemn the attempted attacks against former Presidents Obama, the Clintons, CNN, and others. These cowardly actions are despicable and have no place in this country. Grateful for swift response to the Secret Service, FBI, and local law enforcement. Those responsible will be brought to justice. It was retweeted by the president maybe 20-some uh, minutes ago in which he says, I agree wholeheartedly. So they did uh, okay, put a statement, so which is that, the right yeah. thing to do. We're talking to Juliet uh, uh, Kayyem. You know, Juliet, the, the president, I think, quite skillfully uh, has used this caravan of maybe 7,000 people coming mm -hmm. from Central America as a, uh, a pretty good issue for him, not just with the base, but potentially to shake uh, a lot of people in the middle who are concerned about, quote, invasions and unknown Middle Easterners and criminals. But yesterday, in an interview in the Oval Office, 
the president, when he was asked repeatedly by reporters, said, and vis-a-vis this Middle Eastern thing, there's no proof of anything, but they very well could be, which is borderline. Well, there very well could be, you know, Osama bin Laden's children uh, leading the march, too, and it could be Chuck Schumer, but it isn't. So does this mute the political impact uh, of this, or is this still, I think, a really potent issue for Trump and the Republicans leading into November 6th? So, you know, I'm not the first to say it, but obviously fear of the other is 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 their closing argument. Yeah. Right. I mean, it cannot be taxes. Um, it cannot be um, uh, the economy. Um, and, you know, it cannot be health care or at least what they're saying now on health care is is a lie. They're claiming that they are for pre-existing conditions. We know that they're res- trying to rescind Obamacare was exactly that rescinding uh, uh, protections of um uh, pre-existing conditions. So their closing argument is were, is just fear and loathing, and that's a closing argument that may that does have appeal. Certainly, we saw that in 2016. Uh, but um, and the media and you know has not gotten much more sophisticated in 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 calling it out. Although I will say on the caravan issue, they've been a little bit better. Um, for one, it's thousands of miles of what, away, you know, uh, so you have these people walk nonstop. Uh, they still wouldn't get here before Election Day. So let's just make that clear. Um, and secondly, you know, this idea that terrorism is linked to, you know, presumably refugee or asylee, um, asylum seekers um, is just as the pre- you know, to quote the president is, you know, I sort of made it up. Right. I mean, that's essentially what he said um, is, to you know, get people afraid of this unknown, um, unknown Middle Easterners, which everyone knows what that means, wink and a nod. I mean, the, you know, I'm, I have said it before, the racism that animates um, the closing argument here is, um, you know, is, is distressing and shocking. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, the, and, but this is where the, the White House and I should say their validators on TV are right now. Well, don't forget the president did promise there was going to be a middle class tax cut before the election yeah. <laughs> rolled out next week. Even though right, Congress right. is not in but, session. Yeah, it would be impossible well, to I do, mean, I think that, but he's I think saying it over and over. Is, yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of strain outside my, uh, my specific area. But, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the president isn't stupid, as I've often said, you know, he's looking at the, uh, uh, the deficit, he's looking at the stock market, he's looking at the not so promising uh, uh, foundations in our economy right now, and he's going to blame the feds, right, or as he's been doing, or he's going to switch the topic. So, you know, are you asking me, are the American people or the media more sophisticated this time? Yeah, I think they are in the sense that, um, uh, you know, there's probably been more critical coverage of the caravan than not. But um, nonetheless, um, this is, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is, as I said, this is their closing argument. They got nothing else. Uh, you know, uh, if we can move to another crisis, this one of international uh, proportions, the whole thing with yeah. Saudi Arabia and talk about the Trump administration moving uh, slowly, but moving in the right direction. It was yesterday, I think. The president described this by the Saudis as uh, the cover-up was one of the worst in the history of cover-ups. It's a total fiasco. So for whatever reason, whether it's pressure from Republicans in Congress or international pressure, whatever it is, the Trump administration is beginning to get closer to saying the right things about the murder or the horrible, Mm -hmm. this dismemberment, beheading, whatever, of Jamal Khashoggi. What happens next? What are they? I, I still yeah. don't understand what they actually do. The crown prince is theoretically speaking, not theoretically, today, I think, 
to the uh, international business leaders who, for whatever reason, obviously bottom lines, still chose to go to Riyadh for this conference. A number of people chose not to go. What is the ultimate resolution on the part of the United States? What do we do to show that we mean what the president said yesterday? So there's a variety of options. I mean, one is going to be obviously the sanctions that we've already seen, the specific sanctions. Um, and certainly we can you know, focus on defense spending and whether uh, there would be limitations to uh, uh, defense contracts, which the president doesn't want, but certainly Congress and the Senate can begin that process. Um, so there's a number of, um, uh, of options available to the United States. Um, should there be a desire to do this, right, that, um, um, that um, will, uh, you know, might move Saudi Arabia. I think the question we have to ask is what is our ultimate goal um, uh, as the United States? And I think, you know, I, mean, I, I, I would make it hard for the king to uh, continue to have endorsed the prince um, as the next leader of Saudi Arabia. Um, and um, and that's clearly where Turkey is, and that's clearly where the EU is. They are isolating the king and the kingdom uh, from this renegade, crazy prince who, you know, wowed people like Tom Friedman and Jerry Kushner with his, you know, I'm going to let 10 women drive, right? Like, this is like, you know, progress in Saudi Arabia. Um, but most of us knew that, you know, an autoc- you know, a monarch is a monarch, right? You know, I mean, the autocracy is autocracy. Uh, the Saudis are unloved internally. So, you know, while they, you know, they're, they're applauded and they're supported, but they're not, they're not the British monarchy, right? You know, and so um, the king has got to be a very, a little bit worried about uh, the reaction of this. And I think that is what you're seeing starting to play out is can you isolate the kingdom um, from, uh, from the prince? You know, these three days of nonstop bad coverage of Saudi Arabia just on the front page of the New York Times over the weekend and on Monday, everything from, um, you know, their their shenanigans related to this case to, you know, really untoward financial dealings. This is the, the, the kingdom. I know the kingdom. The kingdom likes nothing else. Uh, less than to not be noticed, um, or like nothing more than to not be noticed. And so that's what I think is, is starting to play out um, uh, longer term as compared to shorter term. We're talking to Juliet Kaim, our Homeland Security Advisor. Juliet, since I criticize Advisor. <laughs> I am. I am. She I is. love that Isn't new she? title. Uh, she is our advisor, yeah, I, I guess, yeah. So since uh, I criticize the president a lot, I'm always looking to say good things that he's done. And you wrote about, about this in The Globe, the president's uh, legislation to fight the opioid yeah. crisis, which passed with huge bipartisan support. I can't resist pointing out that he said no Democrats supported it, but in fact, it got huge bipartisan support. Well, excuse me. In fact, every Democratic supported The only right. re- person who didn't was One a Republican. Republican from Utah. Yeah. But tell us about this, because you identify correctly, I think, that obviously thousands of people continue to die from opioid uh, overdoses. So tell us what's good about this, uh, this legislation. Yeah. So, so let's, you know, you know, it is good news. It's good bipartisan news. And just as the um, opiate deaths are declining, although I should uh, pierce the data on that, that while the opiate deaths are declining, um, the number of people who are dying from fentanyl, which is a much more aggressive opiate is is increasing so unfortunately addicts are are going to the the harsher or or stronger stuff um so i've been involved with this because anyone who looks at the risk to the united states and to the home and to the homeland is certainly going to look at the numbers of people who are dying uh, from opiates and part of the reason why they're dying is of course 
or is because of um, of the of the supply side. So so I get public health. I get you know the issue, the long term issues related to addiction. I know that that is part of any. Uh, anti-opiate campaign, but, you know, you've got to look at the supply. And so one of the things that we know is that our postal services, um, which is ironic given what happened today, but that our postal services are quite uh, vulnerable to packages that in particular are coming from China and Russia, which are known to be uh, the biggest uh, deliverers of, of fentanyl and, and, um, and opiate uh, uh, um, uh, uh, globally, um, this stuff is not coming through a courier uh, through Mexico, and they're basically just mailing it here. And you can see that from the dark web. You can see that from um, uh, from evidence coming from cases uh, that are uh, about distribution, um, and uh, they stick it in the mail. They know what the loophole is. So one of the piece, pieces of a very large, comprehensive opiate addiction legislation, which is going to address lots of issues, is to get the postal service to begin to clean up some of its um, uh, 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 security loopholes, which includes the fact that we don't even ask for electronic data from the sending country. Um, they just put a green piece of paper on it, which is absolutely ridiculous. So, um, so I'm really happy about the work that, that, that we did. And it was a bipartisan group, very few things that uh, work uh, that, that, that happened these days and really happy that the White House is signing it. So now it's just an implementation issue. But, um, but this is a huge, you know, obviously lots of noise going on right now, lots of news today in particular. But, you know, if you look at the systemic challenges facing this country, it is clearly uh, we're a nation of addicts, um, you know, and we've got we've to address it. It's hitting every single community. By the way, one additional note, in addition to reading the piece that uh, that um, Julia Jeff has Rock. in today's uh, Globe, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, for people who missed it, we had the producer and a doctor who appeared in the latest Nova piece called Addiction. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. It's as good a it's piece great. on how this is not a moral failing or a crime but a brain disorder, a health condition that needs attention. It's really good. People should Google now, it Jim, and go check it out. We know what you really want to get to here, so take I, it I'm away. Do, okay, fine. Now, I want to yeah. know, is is General Kelly specifically no. authorized, let me get this out, by the president, or is he on his own punching out all current and former <laughs> staffers? Now, we know that he and a Bolton, the National Security Advisor, came to blows the other day. <laughs> We read in Maggie Haberman's piece in the uh, Times that former uh, campaign manager Corey Lewandowski and he came to blows. So is is this the authorized way to deal with problems in the West Wing? Uh, What's going on with General Kelly? From Brighton, by the way, right down the street. What do you think? Um, So... Uh, so, um, uh, General Kelly had been always known to have a temper. Yeah. Um, I have a temper. I don't punch out my coworkers. Yeah. I know, except for your bosses and Donald Trump, who just feeds <laughs> off his staff, right? I mean, Phil, uh, you know, Phil Rado at WGBH is not instigating massive that is you know, a good point. Uh, consternation. Um, and so the, the president feeds off of these personality conflicts, um, and this one came, my understanding is from Maggie Haberman's reporting, this one came, obviously, uh, I think, in, uh, when, when, when students from Florida uh, and the school that had been, uh, you know, as students that had survived the shooting in Florida uh, were in the White House. Um, the, you know, Corey Lewandowski has been, uh, you know, a critic of the White House without him, right? And so that's got to be really annoying, and it's got to be doubly annoying because the president um, – 
embraces that. Um, so, I mean, that's the, you know, th- that's what I can't believe. And here's John Kelly would have retired as a four-star general um, uh, with a great reputation, could have stayed at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, something about his personality, I think, is, is very consistent with Trump's um, in terms of their politics. He decided to take the chief of staff job. And now look at his reputation. I mean, you know, they always remember your exit, right? You know, you could have spent 30 years building up a great reputation, but the, no one is going to, John Kelly's obituary is going to be him fighting with, um, uh, you know, fighting with Corey Lewandowski in the halls of the White House. Mr. Kelly grabbed Mr. Lewandowski by his collar, trying to push him against yeah. a wall. Mr. Lewandowski did not get physical in response, but Secret Service agents were called in. It's really pathetic. Yeah. You know, <laughs> one of the incredible. great scenes I mean, you're missing on your own station, CNN, is the New York City. No, poli- I'm watching. The police commissioner is holding a press conference. And the reason I'm interested is twofold. It's on CNN is one, because obviously it's a serious issue. And two, because the f- next time that Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio make eye contact will be the first time. <laughs> I mean, it is almost palpable uh, about the dislike between these uh, two leaders. It is really. Cuomo just shot him. Gave me evil evil eye eye. there. I know he did. So uh, it is Mueller time. Before you go there, uh, 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 Juliet, obviously now there is a charge has been filed, at least against, I guess, one woman for potential interference in the midterms. We talked to you for off and on for the last two years about how well we were prepared or not for any Russian interference. And the interesting thing here, at least from what I read, is unlike, uh, I mean, despite what Donald Trump says, it was obviously pro-Trump interference in 2016, it appears that whatever Russian interference we're aware of in the midterms is not pro either side, but rather just to to sow chaos. Is that your read of this thing yeah. too? No, no. I mean, I think, um, uh, I, I just don't think that there's, um, well, let me go back and just remind everyone, we have no idea the theory of the case uh, that Mueller is putting together, nor the extent of which it's not going to involve the election, but maybe financial dealings and things around that. So so I'm always cautious about sort of here's what we know is going to to happen. But but, you know, it is abundantly clear at this stage that the that the focus of the Mueller investigation um, and his mandate is going is around not just disruption, but certainly around uh, the focus on um, on uh, Trump. Now, going to what was said by the National Security Advisor this week, uh, John Bolton, uh, to the Russians, where he said you had no influence on the results of the election, but we don't like what you're doing, um, and you need to stop it. I actually give some kudos to Bolton for finally someone in the White House at least, at the very least, saying something to the Russians uh, about um, uh, about uh, their influence. It's not even influence, about their infiltration of our democratic processes. But wait, I want to be clear. You said you disagreed with me when I said that my understanding was what they're attempting to do in 2018 as opposed to 2016, where they were trying to help an individual candidate, is just to create yeah. chaos across the board. You don't think that's the case? You do think this is no, I pro-Trump? Think, I think that, I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you tell me. I mean, we, I don't know. There's ab- there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that it's um, that it's not still targeted, not just pro you know, be pro Trump and you know, Trump's not on the ballot, but those who who right. Um, uh, but in, but institutions that would be sort of supportive of pro Trump. No, look, Putin. The problem with the problem. I mean, obviously, the idea that Putin's 
um, motivation is simply to disrupt democracy is um, is only a small sliver of what his attempt is. He wants to have elected a certain kind of Demo democratic little d, a certain kind of democratic leader, one popularly elected by a uh, you know a populist movement that questions the um, the post World War II order, which essentially isolated Russia. It's just there's there's no motivation for him to do otherwise, right? I mean, there's his motivation is. He doesn't like the United States because we are the leader of a world order that uh, isolated uh, uh, Russia after uh, the Cold War. And, and so, that, so he, I, we know what it is. It's just so obvious what his motivations are. All right, Julia Kayyem, good luck there at CNN yeah, this good afternoon luck to all on of the, you there, uh, all yeah. those suspicious devices. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, okay, talk to you guys soon. Bye. Juliet Kayyem is on the faculty of Harvest Kennedy School and analyst for CNN, where you'll see her shortly as CEO of Zemcar. Up next, we're going to talk to WGBH arts editor Jared Bowen. We are just talking about fisticuffs outside the White House. Apparently, there are big-time fisticuffs <laughs> at a classical music concert involving our own Andres Nelsons, involving someone making too much noise with a gum wrapper. That is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and uh, Marjorie Egan. By the way, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, graduate of Cambridge Ridge and Latin, is calling the packages an act of terror, according to uh, CNN. So the standard operating procedure at most cultural events, from the theater to the concert hall, is to turn off or silence your smartphone. Would it also behoove these institutions to tell patrons to not wrestle their bags of gum? Clearly, that was what should have been the protocol at, I think it's called the Malmo Concert Hall in Sweden, where a concert goer's noisy pursuit of bubble gum ended in blood. We are so low rent, you and me, Marjorie. That's all we want to talk about. Fist the cuffs at the White House in this. Joining us to talk about this. An algorithm's debut at Christie's Auction House, plus a rundown of the latest arts and culture events in and around town, is WGBH's executive arts editor, Jared Bowen. Jared is the host of the TV series Open Studio, which you, of course, can catch Friday nights at 8.30 right here on GBH2. Hello there, Jared Bowen. Hello. Great to be with you both. And you. Okay. So, Andres Nelsons is <sighs> conducting the very majestic Mahler at the very quiet time in the, in the performance, and all of a sudden, this rustling of gum... <laughs> comes up from the audience making a lot of noise, so take it from there. Well, something we've all spoken about over the years, this might be something I de identify with, but this mm -hmm. happened, as you mentioned, in Sweden, and it was Mahler, this romantic epic, the, the sweeping sounds. And sweeping. Up in the balcony, there was a woman who was rustling, trying to find gum, it appears. You and love that, by the way. I know when you're at a concert yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. You, you may have incited that in me with your own tinfoil. I have, Tuna, yes, I have. We won't relive that. <laughs> no, we won't. Uh, so this woman is rustling for her gum, the young man next to her keeps staring at her. He's very upset that she's making all of this noise. And eventually he swats the gum and the package out of her hands. I love it. As soon as the piece is finished, I think as soon as the piece is finished, uh, about uh, after about 10 minutes, 
Uh, she speaks to her companion, then turns <laughs> to the young man who had swatted away the gum, slaps him across the face, of knocks off does. his glasses, and then the companion, the male companion, comes over and attacks the guy. <laughs> and as if that weren't enough, he, apparently after a, f- a, a little bit more of a moment, he comes back and it looks like they're going to speak. And no, the, the man punches the young man in the stomach. <laughs> All for making noise. But I tell you, poor Andres. Well, I was really disappointed. He, by the way, he came. He started last night. He returned to the BSO last night. So that was a couple of days ago. I'm really disappointed. The story doesn't say what his reaction is. Well, to we this. know he'd been coaxing the quiet notes from the string right, section. I understand that. When this outburst <laughs> happened in the middle of the concert, well, do you remember a when violent this, attack? Do you remember when this happened here in 2007? No. The brawl at Symphony Hall. No. Do you not remember this? This what happened. happened. It happened. I wasn't there, but I remember reading about it. It was a pops <laughs> concert, and the same thing up in the balcony. Apparently, somebody was talking. I actually went online, looked at it today, and there's a picture of this guy. His shirt practically ripped off for this brawl at Symphony Hall, where the, somebody came to fisticuffs, and the the police had to escort that person out. Keith Lockhart, in that case, had to stop the concert. Because, no, <laughs> because there was because it was so disruptive. Oh, How you want to know some? I do. That was General Kelly before he <laughs> went to the White House. I I just remembered that well, was what you know, it was. You know, you do, I mean, we can all relate to this. Usually it's people on their cell phones, <clears throat> which are very bright. In all seriousness, I am really, really responsible about those kinds of things at concerts, plays. And by the okay. way, it's not just because I'm courteous That's to people story. like Jared. It's because it. is there anything more? How about these settings where like at Carnegie Hall and elsewhere, the people on the stage have called out somebody. Your cell phone rings. It's innocent because you forgot to tell your thing. Wasn't there a guy Carnegie yes, at, uh, at the Philharmonic, the I think, who stopped the concert yep. and pointed to the – I mean, oh, and, and my Patty, God. Yeah, Patty LuPone. Patty LuPone. Benedict Cumberbatch, too, yeah. by the way, and Great Britain has done that kind of well, stuff. Well, it's just gotten really obscene. I mean, I, I understand that you want to have the desire to communicate or – but I, I, frankly, I don't get it. I, obviously, I. I'm in the theater all the time, and I see people checking emails because you, when the theater is completely dark, you can see exactly what somebody is doing, and That's it doesn't bother me far. to look and see exactly who they're responding to or what they're saying. I mean, it's just, they have to understand that when you, first of all, when you, you don't turn off your cell phone. I don't think there's a performance I attend now where one doesn't go off at least once during the performance. Then you turn on your cell phone. Everybody can see it, especially if you're in the orchestra. You draw everybody's attention to it, including from the stage. It's just disrespectful. Well, you know, it was, it was not that long ago that you would leave home, go out for an evening, leave your most precious possessions with the babysitter. And go out for six hours. You weren't rushing to the phone every two seconds to check. You weren't doing all these things. So this idea that people have to be on alert for an emergency, what emergency? Your significant other keels over during the concert, they'll still be dead. Let's get home. <laughs> okay, but that's oh. a phone, which is annoying. <laughs> Do you think res- rustling or whatever the verb is, a gum wrapper merits getting punched in the stomach or in the face or swatted in the face by somebody? Possibly, Jim. I, wasn't I don't there. think so. I mean, it is. The, by the way, it is annoying, particularly when something's really quiet. It is annoying, but... Well, here's the other issue about these. I mean, that that does bother me, too, that noise. Just unwrap it beforehand or something. It's not a dining hall at the end of the day. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be cruel about this, but it does distract people. And especially if you look at a place like Symphony Hall, sometimes the, the balcony seating is such that if you're rummaging through your pocketbook or unwrapping a piece of candy, your your knees, if you're doing this in your lap, they're right at somebody's ear level. So you're doing this right in somebody's ear. And, and these are not inexpensive tickets. You don't really want to ruin it for somebody else. Can I and- tell you something? Your attitude is so out there. Jared and I go to a thing a couple of months ago. I hadn't eaten dinner. I don't know if I told you about this. So we go to the theater. I bring a cheesesteak sub. But I, I, 
I unwrapped it before we went in, and it's just sitting on my lap, and, and he's upset about it. I mean, really, okay, got, a all, man's got to eat. It was in a metal lunchbox, <laughs> all the clanging to unwrap it. He couldn't get the thermos undone, so he was banging it on the seat. By the way, I do agree. I really do agree. You with all this stuff. No, dinner it was, it was from a, home? I was choking. Marjorie. Oh, okay. well, we're talking to Jared. Because Bowen. I will point out that Jim always. This is why I have to use straws because Jim criticizes the sounds I make when I drink out of. Well, because it's magnified bottle. on the microphone. You meanwhile, no, this is when I'm just not even oh, on the sorry. microphone. Oh, sorry. You, meanwhile, are over there slurping <laughs> and making all these gross sounds. Do I ever complain like about what? it? Like what? What sound are we talking about? Well, you're eating. You you really are make a lot of disgusting I made American chop suey two yeah, nights ago, and let me tell you, it was really, really <laughs> – okay. I was just eating a few minutes ago. I'm just having a glass of water, and I can't get criticized. Okay, Wait a second. And our producers are getting involved in this. The sound of a plastic bag rustling as I eat deli meat out of it? <laughs> what are they talking about? <laughs> There you go. You were making bad noises this morning. It was honey ham, by the way, first of all. But I wanted to give you a break because you're not feeling well. Okay, thank you. Okay, so this is a great documentary uh, talking about the price of everything, the the price of art and the resale of art. Tell us about it. This is a really, really, I think, extraordinary film because it is so interesting and it's really well made, too. It's by Nathaniel Kahn, who made the the documentary My Architect about his father, Louis Kahn, the great architect. Uh, And now he turns his attention to the art world and Commerce in the art world. This is uh, The Price of Everything, a documentary that's opening at the Coolidge Corner or playing there uh, this Friday and then debuts on HBO starting November 12th. But I have to tell you, spending as much time as I do in museums and galleries and, and studying the art world, there are a lot of questions I have had over the years about just the serendipity involved, or what I thought was serendipity, but realized, of course, it wasn't really, and this answers some of those questions, about how some artists become so fantastically successful, how some artists will sell, their paintings will sell for 70, 80, 90 million dollars, where this ravenous attention for the art world comes, and and uh, Nathaniel Kahn takes us there in The Price of Everything, which is taken from a quote by one of the collectors who he speaks with, who says, everybody... Uh, he says, uh, people know the price of uh, – now I'm botching this. People know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Yes, that's right. That was the Oscar Wilde line. Right, because, of course, art is so subjective. And so you come to understand that a lot of what happens in the art world is fabricated through marketing, through the drive in auctions, uh, through collectors who want to keep the value of their art as such that uh, they need everything to remain as expensive. And he ta- in this piece, he takes you to various artists who kind of get caught up in this. This is really about the contemporary art world, not about old masters. They, they go for millions of dollars. And in part, it's because all of the old masters went for millions of dollars that suddenly there was a supply issue at the turn of the last century, and suddenly they had to beef up the current contemporary art market so that they could have more at auction. So that's part of what fed these prices and this content that we see today. But you see these artists who were just creating... And you feel for them because they, they, they're like most artists who you would meet. They, they love what they do. They love the craft. There is an emotional connection here. But then they watch as their art kind of escapes them and suddenly goes into the auction world, which is not their world. They sell their work through dealers. Uh, and it's going for sometimes more than $100 million. There's a, a really compelling scene in which one artist, um, her name is Najeka Akunili Crosby. She's a Nigerian artist who, by the way, I saw her work at the Baltimore Art Museum last year, Baltimore Museum of Art last year, and it pops. It's fantastic. But she's sitting in front of a laptop. She's relatively new to the art world, and she sees how a piece of hers has just been flipped. And she's watching as this auction goes up by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
But it's all... Does she get the money? She doesn't get the money because it has been flipped. It was bought by someone who then, as her fame has escalated, flips it in the art market. Wow. It it just takes you through all of these iterations. Her artwork can be selling for many millions... And she could be struggling still to pay the rent or something. That's true. It's not as much the case because she has become as famous as she's become. I'll tell you, there's one other really compelling moment in in which they follow the artist uh, Larry Poons, who was somebody who came of age of Frank Stella, of that ilk, very popular 1960s uh, and into the 70s before his success kind of faded away for whatever reason. Again, a lot of this is just arbitrary. And basically hedge fund guys did the calculations of who is the most undervalued artist today and suddenly they focus their spotlight on him and so this tracks as suddenly the art world after decades is paying attention to him because he will they see that he has a place in the art market and that people can buy his paintings and then have value as the asset class it's it's pretty staggering stuff here by the way uh, uh, Jared thank you for that Uh, I'd just like to say that you too have uh, in I think pretty unprincipled fashion uh, caused a lot of the resentment in my co-workers to come to the fore (laughs) Uh, now, one of them has written, I've also watched Jim scoop tuna salad out with his hand onto a cracker. I mean, it's totally unnecessary and unprofessional, I should say, in terms of these totally unconfirmed well, accusations. In my defense, other than the things I've told them, I yeah. am not here all the time, so I think they probably see a lot more than I do. Maybe. Yeah, it's really a Okay, let's go into they the theater. We will not be silent. I have not seen it, but I am guessing that it, uh, no matter what the subject matter is, it is Trump-inspired, Is that, uh, or, or is it not? I, I think that it's easy to draw those comparisons. Uh, we Will Not Be Silent is a piece that's playing at New Repertory Theater through November 4th, and it's actually based on a true story of Sophie Scholl, who was executed at the age of 21 in 1943 by guillotine. She was a German uh, who had been part of the Hitler Youth, but as she became a of age and under the Hitler regime, of course, took note of what was happening in her country. She had a father who resisted Hitler and spoke out against him. Uh, and so she participated in this passive resistance movement uh, called the White Rose Resistance Movement, along with some other medical, stu- medical students, her brother, in which they would graffiti around Germany or leaflet, just very passive protest. But she was arrested and she basically stood her ground. Uh, she was in this piece takes us into the interrogation room as she's being interrogated for her beliefs. But her interrogator is also trying to convince her why there is value in having a leader like Hitler in Germany, why it's needed. There are lines here that drew, when I was there at opening night, drew major responses from the audience, like, no matter how many times you repeat a fact, it does not become the truth. Uh, There is a value in having a leader of this ilk when the economy is doing so well. Uh, While this is a very, of course, old and true story, this is a play that was written by David Myers in 2017, so one can only imagine that he was looking around at the world today and was compelled to retell uh, this story of Sophie uh, Sophie uh, Stoll. Uh, Scholl, rather. Um, I would say this is a very well-acted two-hander. Her brother does come into it, but it's really the dynamic between these two. And it it shifts toward the end when you realize that the interrogator himself is struggling with what he's seeing in Germany, although he's chosen, unlike her, to live in a place of complacency. We're talking to uh, Jared Bowen. Can we move into the museum world for a minute? Explain to me why someone has any interest in a work of art 
created by artificial intelligence. I do not get this. I mean, if it was like $50 as a conversation, I don't get this at all. And the suggestion in the New York Times Review, at least as I read it, is this may be the future. Uh, 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 I don't mean that obviously artificial intelligence will generate everything, including art, but that this may be the future of art generation and collection? I mean, really? I suspect that this is going to be a big part of the art world future. It's fascinating for me to see this story about this new piece created entirely by artificial intelligence and see the price of everything in the same week and understand even more about the art market. The reason we're talking about this is because Christie's is having a a big auction on Thursday and in that auction is a piece that they expect to sell from between seven dollars to $10,000 and it's a piece created in entirely by code. So what has happened is this group called Obvious, which is a trio of students with uh, this technical expertise but zero art background, has developed coding, whereby there's one set of code that scans portraits spanning 14th century art right up until the 20th century to create pieces. And then there's a second piece of code that analyzes what it's produced to make sure that it isn't too, it's not replicating existing pieces to such an extent that it is so recognizable so that ultimately it produces a piece that's entirely original. So the style is programmed in essentially and then it generates something new based upon Right. The style that it is, quote, learned. Right. So it just spits it oh, out. Jesus. There's nobody uh, nobody standing there with their iPad creating like David Hockney does. There, there, there's no hand in this at all other than the coding. This has also become controversial because Obvious is not the only group that's done this. There have been other coding groups that have tried to create art this way. Uh, so now there's a question of authenticity and authorship. I think, I mean, the art is pretty enticing, I would say, just looking at it at a well, computer I've screen. At, I've looked at a lot of these things online, and some of them are pretty, you'd say, wow. But it's not created by I know, a human being. I know, I know, but it, but um, you can see where people would buy it. They, they look at it, and it's visually attractive or appealing or whatever to them. And, and you know, there's some that looks like the uh, Escher um, drawings right. that we always see that, and um, those are pretty cool. Oh, but you also know the story. I mean, Escher is, is a cult figure because people know Escher, the worlds that he created and the hand that was in it. For me, is mo- I'm always looking at stories in artists and I'm looking at the intent of the artist and the emotion that you yeah. can feel in the work. If you're just looking at something that's created by AI, yes, you can appreciate it aesthetically, but I don't know how you – I couldn't, I should say, have any sort of emotional connection. I couldn't find an emotional resonance there. So, But I, I think the, the Christie's is doing this for a reason. I mean this is a major auction house. They're getting lots of attention and conversation around this. So I, I think this is the beginning of something in – entirely different in the art world. So the guy who's run one of our favorite museums, Peabody Essex, is stepping down after, what, a quarter of a century? Yes, 25 years. He's done a great job. Boy, talk about the growth. I was reading the story about the the growth. I mean, I've only said it a hundred times. I love the museum for a zillion reasons. Everything from the Yin Yutang house, this 18th century Chinese house that was taken apart piece by piece and reconstructed. Yeah, that is incredible. It is unbelievable. Plus, Everything is, I hate to be repetitive, but I am repetitive. It is so manageable. Nothing is, one of the reasons I have problems with some museums is they're so overwhelming in so many ways. Everything is accessible and manageable and just almost perfect. I love this place. And it sounds like this is almost all under the stewardship the stewardship of this guy for a couple of decades. Yeah, so Dan Monroe is the director of the Peabody Essex Museum. As we mentioned, he has been for 25 years. He just announced he's stepping down next uh, September uh, and really, 
he has a wonderful team, but he has been the visionary leader behind making the Peabody Essex Museum what it is today. He took over just as the Peabody Museum had fused with the Essex Institute in Salem uh, to have this one institution that he decided to, that in addition to being a repository for historic artifacts, maritime art, that it could be the cultural center then that it is today. And one of my favorite aspects of the Peabody Essex Museum is how inventive it is and how clever they are with programming. Uh, I, I think they've managed to define themselves as a very singular museum for, for bringing in a, a wider range. <coughs> of art, changing the way we experience art. They, they play with bringing music into the galleries. They play with color that you might not necessarily see in other museum exhibitions. He was also uh, the, the leader who thought it was important to bring in a neuroscientist to help un understand why people look the way they do and have that inform the way that exhibitions are programmed. But beyond that, he brought the budget from $3 million to $33 million. That is wow. unbelievable. An endowment from wow. 23 to $500 million. Wow. They're also near in the end of a $650 million capital campaign, uh, and we'll see uh, that uh, result next summer when this major new expansion at the Peabody Essex Museum opens. So his his is a tremendous legacy. He's also, by the way, made this one of the, the largest museums in the world. It's in the top 10%. But well, you know what's it great, is, too? Yeah. I mean, you've been there a lot more than I Lots. have. I've only been there a couple of times. But it's so easy. The parking is so Everything easy. Everything is easy. Getting in there is easy. Great. And, the, and the physical space is beautiful. It is gorgeous. I mean, yeah. the the expansion they've already done there. It's just gorgeous. It's, and you don't expect it because it's not. You know, it's not a. It's not Boston. It's not New York, right there. And soup's also really good in the cafeteria. <laughs> by the way, by the way, people. Are, it is, isn't some, it? Uh, well, Paul, I love the chocolate chip cookies. I never really leave without having a good chocolate there. chip cookie. Yeah, what? Paul is saying he doesn't good mind if you're too. scooping tuna with <laughs> salad with your hand out of a cracker because on, on no cracker. when you don't eat, Jim, apparently your stomach is growling so loudly <laughs> on the air and it disturbs the listeners. So now, I, I don't guess, mind that people are making these things up. I mind that they're all coming out. You know, it's sort of like there's a pent up anger that people feel about how I comport myself. I was raised earlier today when you criticized me for my water drinking and you're like. I did not do that. You do. Did I that's do it what, today? That's why I have the straw. Did I do it today? You did not do it today, okay, but fine. you have intimidated me into never drinking water without a straw. I see, and I always thought you were doing that to save lipstick or something. I never realized that. Oh, uh, no. Well, the lipstick is a side. That's another matter with which I'm very concerned. But the main concern <laughs> is not to get criticized by this slurping individual over Thank here. Thank you very much. Sherrod, it's great to see you as Good always. To see you. Oh, what are you doing uh, Friday night? We forgot to ask you. I'm sorry. Uh, we are going to Har the Harvard Art Museums for drinking games. They have a show of animal-shaped vessels and, and the drinking rituals going back thousands oh, of I years. I love that. That's great. And uh, we'll also sit down with MIT professor and composer Todd Mako about his new opera for the Boston Lyric Opera called Scherenberg in Hollywood, basically Ooh. leaving his fraught journey, leaving Hitler's Europe for Hollywood in the oh. 1930s. Great. Oh, we'll be watching. Thank you very much, Good to Jared see Bowen. WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen joins us every week. He's the host of the TV series Open Studio. You just heard him previewing this week. You can catch Open Studio every Friday night at 8.30 right here on WGBH Channel 2. Thank you, Jared Bowen. Up next... Wild and Crazy Alex Beam is here for his explainer, and he's going to tell us all about why it's important to read Moby Dick, the book that is our chosen book for our upcoming book club. <coughs> Stay tuned for Alex Beam on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. Uh, here with us in Studio 3 is Boston Globe columnist Alex Beam. And as we do every time Alex here, we marvel that his name is Alex Beam because when Alex writes like a roof beam, he keeps everything elevated. <laughs> Would you not agree? That's a seltzer, so not much. a Budweiser. It I love the way Alex my seltzer always actually. begins every visit with a, with a loud <laughs> opening exactly. of the seltzer. Yeah. So You're welcome. Thanks let, for let's your start with this compliment, I guess. With this great story. Yeah. What's the, which one? About stalking the elusive <laughs> squirrels. I love this Central story. Central Park squirrel. Yeah, this guy oh running God. around Central Park looking for squirrels. At first he has trouble, but things improve. Well, not, not markedly, but I mean, it's, you hardly know where to begin. Who knew there was a Central Park squirrel census? <laughs> I had no idea. This is real, by the yeah, way, for the people who real. don't know. Yeah, yeah I mean, at, at the risk of, of uh, boring everyone on the planet, I mean, there is something, for instance, the famous Audubon Christmas count of birds. Birds takes place in Washington D.C. and various other I did not know various that. other cities. That, yeah. yeah, it's famous because they're allowed to go on the White House grounds. It's um, you can go anywhere in the district, and so the White House is open to these Audubon Society members who are who are counting birds. You know, it's like December seventeenth or something. Anyway, I why on earth? And so it turns out there's a census of squirrels. Yeah, who cares? <laughs> exactly. That's a good first question. Who does care? What's the answer to that? I don't have an answer. Nor does the New York Times, for that matter. But can I? But the other thing I don't understand. And I read the story fairly carefully. Is while I don't know anything about birds, I assume those who do can say, well, I can identify that bird I just saw. So when it flies to another quadrant that's being censusized, if that's a verb, we know that it's the same bird. I assume most people cannot tell one rodent apart from another rodent. So when the squirrel moves from one person's census area to another, how do they not know know it's double counted? And by the way, the fact that they concluded the rate... I used to live in New York City, spent a lot of time in Center Park. I'm not done yet. The fact that that they say there are 800 squirrels in Central Park. There are 8 million squirrels in Central Park. So go ahead. Okay. He finally finds one in this story. And I love the description when he says, up the little rise, he gives it some Latin name I can't pronounce, in all its perky-eared, bushy-tailed woodland majesty, a splendid specimen with cinnamon highlights. In cinnamon its highlights. Coat, takes a few steps, oh, paws at the ground, looks up for danger, rows onto its hind legs, pauses, and executes a saucy tail dance. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how great is that? The saucy tail Those New York Times dance. writers, they really get it done. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's a funny little piece because I guess he's assigned a quadrant. Quad, yeah, a little area. includes they, part of Harlem. I mean, yeah. it's freaking ridiculous. Yeah. And you know what's great, though? I, I have a back porch. What, they don't have squirrels in Harlem? I mean, well, but how the northern that... part of the park has it's squirrels. Park. Yeah, but he had to exit and go on the sidewalk no, no, or something. That's right. Well, they taco. said that if he found them on the sidewalk in Harlem, they... they they secretly live in the park, so that's oh, where they okay. spend their evenings. <laughs> but, you know, they are fun to watch. I have a back porch. Now that my dog is deaf, he doesn't spend all his time barking at the squirrels in the back porch. But I can look out of my kitchen and see the squirrels in the back porch. We have a black one. And they are really fun to watch. What's the fun part? They Just the way they move we around. We have a squirrel highway in our in our backyard. There's a, the neighbor, there's, there's a fence between us and the neighbors, and the squirrels run uh, up oh, and down the Yeah, the, how the fun fence. is that? Well, it looks fun. I mean, I don't know. This is essentially a follow-up, of course, on the Globe's amazing scoop about the squirrels in the in the garden, Boston Garden, uh, the, the garden, right? Oops, I missed that one. Um, yeah, which is, they're all overweight. There's this huge problem with squirrel obesity. French fries. 
Yeah, but maybe less so in, in New York City. It sounds like these are fairly... How about Christopher Muther's great piece about that retired vet or whatever he was last year who had a romance or whatever, a squomance yeah, he rescued with a squirrel, a whatever it was. He rescued an injured squirrel, it was a bu- nursed Pepito it back to or life. I think the, it was. The squirrel would eat out of its, eat out of its hands. He gave and, it physical therapy. You didn't yeah, read this? Didn't it was read a great story. Oh, yeah, but can you do me a favor? Treadmill. It was great. Okay. On a week when your explainer is ridiculous, which well, is... Exactly. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> can you try to find out why they're Why doing they're a squirrel census? To yeah. Begin? Okay, let's, fine. Let's put that in pencil for next week. Okay. Now, this next story <laughs> yeah. is so Alex Beam. He loves to write the story about Michael Collins because he's he's understated, very grumpy. You know, it, it, give us the detail. This is a pretty funny column, Alex. Is it? I, that's kind of you to say. It I'm, is. I'm kind of grateful. It's to, so you. Uh, I'm kind of grateful to the Globe for printing it, actually. But uh, So there's this movie out there that no one's going to go see. Yeah. It turns out it's really bombed at the box office. This movie called First Man about Neil Armstrong. Ryan Gosling. And, and it kind of just realized maybe I could sneak in a column about Michael Collins, whom I've always admired, a graduate of the St. Albans School, I might add, an Episcopalian in space. Um, (laughs) There aren't many, is that what you mean? (laughs) Very few. What, are mostly people Presbyterians? (laughs) Anyway, I spent a whole vacation reading Collins' amazing book called Carrying the Fire, and he, he's just a very strange guy. He, he's famous. You know, he didn't set foot on the moon. Right. He was up there circling the moon while, while Buzz and Neil were wandering around. He's, I mean, he's clearly an unbelievably able guy, uh, very self-effacing. And this very long book about his career as a, as a fighter pilot and an astronaut is, is incredible because it's so direct and so candid and so kind of... Sort of, it's not in any way anti NASA book, but it's just very kind of like talks about the many, the many coin tosses, the many dangers, the many things that that went wrong and could have gone wrong. Um, Crazily, you know, he was not destined to fly the first moon mission. It gave me this. I was going to call it contingency and the grumpy astronaut, which is a really pretentious name for a column, but he really made you appreciate. the role of contingency in all of our lives. I mean, he, he was not supposed to fly on that mission. He start, Suddenly his back started hurting him. He needed spinal surgery. He, he was very upset. You know, he wasn't ever going to fly again. Somehow he's inserted into this mission. Um, and then in later life, he, he basically is a misfit. I mean, I kind of kept this out of the column. He went to the State Department as a deputy assistant secretary for public affairs, really bombed. He He then went to sort of quote-unquote, create the Air and Space Museum on the mall, the, the NASA Space Museum. And in all in interviews, he always says, you know, I was just a figurehead. These other guys did the work. It's a, it's a great museum, and he gets by it. And now he's going around, you know, on these very rare times when he makes public appearances. I, there's this amazing video of him at MIT where everyone's addressing him as General Collins, and he says, no, I'm sorry, I'm Mike Collins. And he's been to MIT a lot because they created the guidance system that allowed us to land on the moon. And he makes all these like jokes about MIT and how he wished Caltech had designed this thing. And <laughs> he's just he's very very funny. His wife was from Boston, as I pointed out. He has a lot of Boston jokes. But basically, he's reciting poetry now at all of his public events, and he's reciting flawlessly like fifty lines from Paradise Lost, which I really dare anyone in the world like to quote. Anyway, I'm, he's, I he's my hero. I, I'm glad he's alive. I think he's a great, great American. Do you know until the Kavanaugh hearings that Carrying the Fire, uh, Collins' book, and Wasted Tales of a Gen X Drunk <laughs> were tied for the least read books in American history? And obviously Mark Judges is... Okay, God bless Adrian Walker, Boston Globe. What column. did he do? He said, he said 
uh, commenting on my column that Carrying the Fire was one of his all-time favorite really? books. Really? Really? What, in the comments on your story, or he just came up in to a, you and no, said No, he posted on Facebook or something. He oh, said, really? thank you very oh, much. That's pretty good. People really should consider reading, not for our book club, it's not for everybody. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. It's really well-written. Carrying the Fire. Carrying now, the Fire. we have uh, not done our Nordic segment with you in the last <laughs> couple of visits. <laughs> yes. So we're not only doing it with you, but we're going to discuss the same topic with our listeners in a couple of minutes. Apparently... <laughs> Finns do not engage in small talk. And where does that come? I mean, what what is that about? I mean, you understand the Nords or whatever they're called, the Nordic the people. Nords? Well, I married whatever one. They are. I married one. I know. So but I didn't I didn't marry a Finn. Although whenever she comes back from the hairdresser, I say you look just like a Finn air stewardess. Which is flight attendant, we call it. I know, way, I know, you. but back in the day it was meant to be a compliment. Okay. Uh, um yeah, no, this is, uh, there's this whole thing. I, I'm kind of anticipating, I'm definitely going to write a column on being spiritually Finnish because I realize I am spiritually oh, Finnish. Oh, absolutely. Now, the BBC has been all over this. Firstly, there's this whole thing about how your Finns really don't like to waste words and they don't ask you how you're doing. I'm going to, I'm going to open this parenthesis now. I can't go into, going to Trader Joe's now is like going into some locker room where everybody wants to talk to you. I'm thinking, can't I just buy my like amazing yeah. burritos and, my, and grind my coffee and get out of here? No, it's like everybody in America wants to ask how you're doing. Is this the way you want? Did you find everything? Who cares whether I found everything? I need to get to my car. Anyway, <laughs> in Finland, there's none of that, which is fantastic. I mean, God bless Finland. Apparently, everyone's so taciturn that it's almost well, like a social problem. But, but there's no baloney in conversations, too. If the two of you sit down, the evening you're, you're going to talk about life and sex and romance and things went well and things went terrible and how you can't stand your mother or your sister, whoever it is. I mean, I love that kind of thing. I What's the point in interacting if you don't learn anything fascinating about the other person just sitting there talking about sports you know, or on politics? This- Next to this BBC article about how the Finns don't like to engage in small talk, there's a separate article called Why Finns Don't Want to Be Happy. <laughs> I'm thinking, these are my people. I've spent like 60 years pursuing unhappiness. So one of Quite the national sayings is apparently silence is gold, talking is silver. So they must hate cocktail parties. God, doesn't everyone hate cocktail parties? I mean, drinking you know, alone people, and just watching TV, that's what's fun. are really good at cocktail parties. Jim is, is a social No, I, I'm not. Yeah, we go he through is. this. I'm, I'm really tired of you saying around. this all the time. It, you, you do. You are like a social magnet. I don't like going to those things yep. for the most part. I, they're always better than I expected them that's to right. be. I would agree. I agree with a lot you of on nice that. People in the world, I'm willing to but work I dread the room, them actually. Every, what's that? I'm willing to work the room because yeah. I don't get out much. and So how are you feeling, by the way? Thanks for asking. And that nice top you're wearing today. Okay, at least I'm dressed yes, normally. Thank you. Okay, okay. Have, that was small talk. You missed shag my rug. Okay, yeah, fine. The purple shag rug thing you had a couple okay, of weeks ago. Okay, fine. That's, By the way, you I'll want to know something interesting? Marjorie is uh, selling her car. And we have the exact same car because we bought it from a sponsor years ago. And you have agreed to give me your seat covers, which I thought that was very correct. kind. When I was looking at the seat covers yesterday, I knew they reminded me of something. You know what it is? The thing that Alex wore last week. <laughs> Yeah, that's the right. I'm going to wear that again. Beige shag uh, yeah, seat covers, yeah. I yeah. love the idea you guys getting corrupt car, cars from... Uh, well, no, it was, it was not corrupt. Back when, no, back when you were in private radio, I know. You got all those face radio. creams well, we for tried. Free, yeah. We tried to get corrupt cars. We, we actually didn't get a deal. <laughs> but as it turns out, 
We got nothing. And then we had to but drive nice forever to go to the dealership for the we don't have to we're into the warranty. We had to go hours and hours Very away. nice guy who Turned sold out him not to be us. Such a great and deal. we don't even have to mention his name because exactly. it's not commercial radio. <laughs> okay, fine. That's right. God bless public radio. But I did right. have the car for 11 years. So, uh, uh, and I still have mine, actually, and I'll now have her getting a new car. seat covers. What are you getting? Oh, let's not go into this. Yeah, <laughs> Small talk. I mean, who needs... Really? I realized I bought the wrong color car, but it's too late now. Oh, because the Globe has this big thing on blue. You have to buy blue. There's a she, piece of, there's, she bought Blaze Blue or there's something. There's a piece in today's Marjorie. Globe about... Everyone's buying... Oh, no, no. She's going to get the... She's the happiest she's yeah. ever been. Yeah. Blue is... And my car's blue, by the way, so... Wait a minute. They call it, they call it Miami Blue. I thought that was the Any color blue is... is wow. Yeah. It oh, is? It's the thing, yeah. Jeez, I'm ahead of my time for once in okay. my life. Marjorie, you're like a big fat squirrel forward. in Central Park. Exactly. Enough about you. Can we... Now, I want to know what your takeaway from this rather long New York Times piece was. Here's the headline. The trade war's latest casualties. This is a couple of days ago. China's coddled cats and dogs. I want to know what you took away from it. I want to know what you took away from it, Marjorie. And then I will say what I took away from the story. Go ahead, Alex. Okay. Well, it is. it was long. It is very long. Okay. Too long, actually. And it, it's interesting because it's about this class, basically, of young, affluent Chinese people. And it's always kind of interesting to know that there's – just tens of millions of, of well-to-do young people in China. And it turns out they don't have any space to live in. So instead of having children, they have pets. And they're affluent, they have money, and they, this is the kind of sad part. They don't want to feed their pets Chinese pet food because like Chinese infant food, it's often poisoned. So there's a huge market in China for pet food imported from the United States. And I, I, I'll, I'll definitely let you guys say what you... No, go ahead. I, you know Keep what my going. takeaway... Since you asked job. what my takeaway is? Yeah. Well, that's... Anyway, so the story is about whether... There, there's two things happening. Trump might impose tariffs, of course, on these uh, pet, American yes. pet foods, A. and But B, the Chinese themselves are, like, uh, having fake inspections of various... Containers. You know, can I tell you something? <laughs> we were trying to have a conversation, and our listeners oh are kind car. enough to join us. And Marjorie is Googling the story in the Globe I'm about sorry. blue cars. Yeah, I mean, really, Marjorie. She's over the moon. So small of you. I well, should say. I don't mean. Look at her. I'm a. Look I know. Her. I'm a Marjorie fan, but this is actually an important I'm story. I'm sorry. I'll this stop. Pet food. I'll we'll stop. get. We'll get back to okay. your blue car. Anyway, you know. Uh, anyway, so and, and the Chinese are monkeying around with American imports generally. That, so, like, they're taking too long to inspect the containers that have. You know, here's my takeaway, yeah. which I, you know, I, I, this is really weird. I came maybe I came away with a very weird patriotic takeaway which is that people are always slagging off regulation and America. It turned, So who's the hero of this story? The freaking FDA, right? Because we actually inspect our food products. In China, it turns out they eat the pet food to find ding, out if ding, they're going to... Ding, 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 ding. Here's you. my takeaway. Okay. It's in the second paragraph. Dada is Olivia Wren's beloved golden retriever, and she pays heavily in Shanghai for an imported American brand of pet food called Canada or something so that he can eat the best. Ms. Wren, this is Olivia Wren, often tastes his food herself to make sure it isn't rancid or poisonous, as she believes Chinese pet food can sometimes be. That is not the foulest thing you have ever heard. She opens a can and takes a taste of the dog food. I mean, really? Yeah, and if it's rancid, I mean, then she's willing exactly. to eat the ra- But not feed... I mean, dogs actually have a pretty strong constitution. I'm surprised. But, I, you know, okay. I just said... Okay, we pay a lot of taxes here in America, 
But on the other hand, and I know there's been an outbreak of listeria at Trader Joe's. It always comes back to Trader Joe's. They appreciate you bringing but, it up. Yeah, right? I know. I'm sure they do. <laughs> but, no, I mean, come on. I'm I mean, you, you know, the Chinese, the, the gosh darn toothpaste was poisoned over there like seven or eight. Yeah, it's I terrible. Mean, it's, you know. Okay, stop. We've got to get this out. I know. You don't know her like I know her. Let's just get it out of your system. How happy are you about this story? <laughs> By the way, she bought the car yesterday or the day before. I would say of the, let's say I've had 50 conversations with her since, you know, short ones about the show and that sort of, uh, sort of thing, maybe 50 conversations. Of the 50, how many have you mentioned the agony of having a horribly uh, well, colored blue car? I have been obsessed with buying the wrong color car, and I pointed out different, you know, colors that look like it, looking for reassurance. And then I saw it again yesterday. I went back to the dealership. I said, oh, my God, it's so bright. It looks like Miami Vice or something like that. But now I'm reading this thing in the Boston Globe. You're right. It said... It's now blues turn to shine, extremely bright shades. The making of a trend starts two to three years before a color is introduced, and that's what is happening. I'm going to be ahead of my time. You're a trendsetter. Blue yeah. cars. I, and I'm feeling really good about having brought this okay. information this into the, the studio. This is the color of my car. It's like that. You know can you just saying? tell us well, the model? Can I tell you? What most model? people who are participating in this conversation didn't see you point. Okay. Because they're not in the studio, so that's not of great value. But they them. have all these names for them. They're called oh, them God. Bombay Blue, Riviera okay. Blue, Rhapsody Blue, Performance Blue. Okay, I'm sorry. What kind blue. of car did you get? Please, just tell us briefly. I got another Toyota. Round four. Round four. Okay, that's fine. Okay, fine. I got it We're used. moving on I got now. it used, but it has low mileage. Okay, fine. Yeah. Okay. You may be aware <laughs> that a week from yesterday is the Alex Beam BPR book club, and we are reading Moby Dick. And again, you only have six days to finish or do whatever. And if you want to cheat and watch the movie or do whatever, that's we'll live with that. But talk about timely. What appears a couple of days ago on NPR? Why read Moby Dick? Question mark. A passionate defense of the quote American Bible. Bible. How powerful do you think this argument was? Um, I don't know. I didn't even bother listening to his argument. Oh, okay, <laughs> fine. Okay. Then you really don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Glad you're prepared. She's looking up blue cars, and you don't read the <laughs> stuff for the show. I read it, but I didn't listen. Oh, fine. I'm not okay. going to listen to Nathaniel. Philbrick explained to me why Moby Dick. I mean, it's, he has a book out on that subject, by the way. He has a very slender book called Why Read Moby Dick. Um, by the, can we just do a census? I'm no. on literally on page 300. I, I'm way behind. I got I got bogged down in the in the endless chapters on baleen and body parts of the whale. Well, speaking of body parts, that chapter we're talking about that next week. Let me tell you right now. <laughs> I can imagine. I am okay. I am not only likely to be the only person uh, that finishes this. I will at least be the first person that. finishes. Why do you make that absurd of all the claim? Bo- because I am really smoking along How here. F- by the where, way, what page are you I got on? home from the baseball game last night. At you about read Moby Dick. Twelve thirty. I read. 15 pages. No, I know that's not a lot no, in a big that's, book, that's good. but in the middle of the night, which is 1230, to right. me, yep. that was I was really proud. I don't know why you're harping on this thing that Marjorie and I are not going to finish, though, because we are. Because gonna, you have six really days try, to yeah. go, and you got a lot of reading to do. Well, you don't do much. No, I, so, I, I, mean, I have 120 pages to read. Oh, oh I thought you said you're oh, only so you're halfway through. I know, I'm at page oh. 300. So how oh, no, are you ever going like, to finish? Well, I'm listening to it. I've been listening lately on audiobooks, so oh, I don't know what page I'm on. But I think I'm on chapter 40. So oh, I don't know yeah. what page that is. Yeah, you have some... You have some There's 712 waste. chapters, so you have a little ways. No, they're not 712 oh, chapters. There's a lot of chapters. Yeah, there's a lot of chapters. So I, I, I'm in the... We just finished the discussion of the the body parts and the different million different Have you gotten to the one on the particular body part that's particularly interesting and I, large? I, no, I, no, I have to say, I, I said I've heard enough about the body parts. I'm going to skip past this okay, part. So well, I wouldn't I go if back I were you. And listen to this yeah, story. I have not yet gotten to okay, that. Okay, we're yeah, going to talk about that. Now, yeah, so okay. it, it is next Tuesday, is that correct? Next Tuesday at 1230, 1230. at the Boston Public yeah. Library. 
so people can come make fun oh, of us. Oh, that's a great idea. Person. They can be there. That's right. That's right. They can take Moby Dick out. And you will know we'll do, if you come and want to participate in the discussion, we'll do, the, we haven't done the homie mic in weeks and weeks and weeks. We'll, we'll uh, get that going again. So if you want to be part of the show, you can obviously call in after we talk for a little bit. But if you want to come down to the library and participate in the discussion, we'd love you to do that too. Are you into listening to books? Um, I'm sorry to say I'm not. Yeah. I, why? Yeah. I can tell you why I'm not. Well, I don't Puts know. Puts me right out. I mean, unfortunately, it doesn't matter what it is, no matter how interested I, I'm, I am, I'm asleep in a matter of Well, you have to seconds. do it when you're in a place you can't fall asleep, like driving the car, like driving the car or walking yeah. the dog or something like that. That's what I Are do. Are you really into it? Well, it's interesting. Um, I've become a big podcast fan. And I, when I first got into it, I didn't like it because you can't turn back the pages and mark things and write in the margins and all that kind of stuff. But I have gotten sort of into it. Um, yeah, I listen to podcasts when I drive. I, I feel like I'm not. When I had small kids and we, we used to like drive really long distances, we listened to Stephen King short stories. Oh, fun! Which was great because <laughs> kids can follow them. Yeah, and he's just a master. But um, no, I don't listen to books on tape for some reason. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why. The only thing that I'm able to listen to and stay awake is they the producers put together for me Jim Browdy's greatest moments from Boston <laughs> Public Radio, and I've listened to that. Hundreds of it's short. I'm having uh, trouble getting to sleep. Could I borrow uh, that? But I'm bummed. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, okay, right. here's okay. the moment that you're uh, really here for. This is not a horrible one, by the way. It's not an no, it's A, a but it's at least a B. Really. I, so I, what I, do you? What's he? Before we start the 45 second explainer clock, what are you explaining? Yeah, things? I don't really. I, I, this you is. Don't know what you're. Explaining? I mean, I know what I'm explaining, but I, I'm explaining uh, the the not terribly surprising fact that five of the thirteen. Dead Sea Scroll fragments in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. are, wait for it, fake. Okay. Okay. So can yeah. we start the clock? Uh, everybody ready to start the clock? 45 seconds. No extensions. Today. No, absolutely not. 45 no, no, seconds. No. Just talk fast. I will. Okay. You have three right. seconds. Three. Thanks. Two. Okay, fine. Go. Okay. The whole, pur- <laughs> the whole purpose of this seems to be to heap mud, basically, on the Hobby Lobby, the very conservative... Um, corporation owned by the Green family, which famously, I think, won this case at the Supreme Court level to deny health care coverage for contraception for their... for yeah. their employees. Do any of them have 12 kids? I'm just curious. I have no idea. I don't even know what their brand of, of Christianity do. is. Anyway, they built something just south of the mall in Washington, D.C. called Museum of the Bible. The reason that this isn't really a great vehicle for uh, heaping mud on them is that the Museum of the Bible looks very serious and very interesting. And among other things, they acquired a number of Dead Sea Scroll fragments, which are very, very expensive. We, these come from the Dead Sea, blah, blah, blah. Um... And some of them are fake. But the thing is, you can't, it turns out their own scholars researched them and declared them fake. And the Hobby Lobby itself paid a lot of money to send this stuff to Germany, where these prestigious German scholars said they're fake. And I'm, I'm kind of sorry. And so they still have eight fragments. You're looking at me with a great deal of skepticism. They still have eight fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls that aren't fake. And luckily, there's not enough time for me to explain how important. The Dead Sea Scrolls That's good. are. They now, got let me... in trouble, too, with uh, buying all this stuff from uh, dealers that have mm. supposedly smuggled stuff out of Iraq. And That's so a separate forth. thing. I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves were really kind of uh, contraband, you know, in the late 1940s. And the provenance is very, very hard. Even okay, the, I don't even want to tell you what to do, but if I you. were you and okay. had a choice between discussing the frauds at the Museum of the Bible... Or why there's a squirrel census in Central Park. I would have hoped <laughs> for the latter. Or why we have, how many pages do we have on the genitalia of whales? I mean, is it at least uh, 40 pages? Just about enough, I think. 
We'll certainly want to put that audio on. So next Tuesday, uh, 12.30, at the Boston Public Library. Talk about fitting. Oh, by the way, you know what? I didn't tell you. Speaking of books, do you know what won last night's PBS Great Read or whatever? To Kill a Mockingbird. My favorite book of all time, actually. One of my favorite books. And Rachel Rollins told us the other day, the Suffolk County Democratic candidate. It's her favorite. I went to law school because of that book. And honest to God, and... uh, What's his face in the movie? Atticus Fitch. Well, I mean, God, like, yeah, what's a uh, uh, Gregory Peck? Gregory Peck, Peck plays Ahab, of course. Yeah, of course. Another nice connection. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'll see you next Tuesday. All right, stay in school. I have a lot of reading Bye. to do. You're, you're going to make it. Okay. Really, we're going to catch up with great. you. It's like, it's the American it, it, it's Bible. It's the American, it's American Bible. Bible. That's something we can talk about. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Alex Beam joins us every week. He's a columnist for the Boston Globe. His latest book is The Feud: Vladimir Nabokov, Edmund Wilson, and the End of a Beautiful Friendship. Thank you very much, Alex. Up next. We're opening lines and asking you about something we talk with with Alex about. Could you do without small talk? That conversation continues. No small talk. 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brady and Marjorie. And if, if you just turned in, we were talking to Alex Beam about Finland, where one of their national sayings apparently is silence is gold, talking is silver. In Finland, the Finnish forego the conversational platitudes that so many cultures, including ours, seem to do reflexively. Easy for me to say, Jim. For the Finnish, the philosophy is if you got nothing to say, don't bother saying a bunch of nothing. We'll take your calls. We don't have much time and ask you, is this a cultural convention you'd like to practice here? If it were hardwired in our society, we're not expected to chit-chat. Would that be a relief or would it further erode civility? The number is 877-301-8970. Is it good for us to try to find some common ground about innocuous things, even if it's just the weather or is it an empty exercise? 877-301-8970. Eighty-nine seventy. So, where are you on uh, on uh, uh, you know this chit chat kind of thing? I like one on one conversations about non small talk subjects. You know, it always <laughs> cracks me up sometimes. Where you and I, I, I sound like I'm being sexist about this, but I think it's I think it's sort of true. That lots of times, you know, the men you know, your husbands, your your kids, your, your sons, your spouses. They'll go off to dinner with their friends, and the friend will be in the middle of some harrowing divorce, or they just had, they just you know broke their leg in three places or something, and and you think about it, you say, so how's so and so, and the husband responds, we were talking about the World Series. I, I don't know, we we didn't talk about, the, you know, the men tend to not talk about those things, whereas women go out together and they talk about. Uh, everything from their parents to their children to their romantic relationships in pretty gritty uh, detail. Do you I- want that all the time? I mean, the beauty of small talk, which is, is almost a pejorative term in and of itself, is that you can touch somebody, so to speak, without touching them too much. Meaning you don't have to, like, inv- you know, I don't mean that. <laughs> oh, Jim, that's so you. That is deep, isn't it? <laughs> It is actually it is me. That is that's true. You. I know that's not that's an you. insult. That is no, true. No, I love you to sort hear. of you, you enter into a brief relationship with somebody, brief conversation, and then you move on to the next one, kind of thing, without going. I mean, that's why, as we've said, and I've, I actually said this at the wine uh, and cheese, whatever the hell the thing was we did, Chef's Gala, that great yep. thing we did a couple yep. of weeks ago, is if you want to talk to Marjorie, and you want to talk to her, if you just meet her on the street, you want to talk to her for I don't know, seven hours, <laughs> eight hours. She'll talk to you. She doesn't care. Not only does she not care, she will be into it. 
I'm not quite. Well, I can't. I don't have an attention that's span. That's not always true because sometimes I have to go somewhere. Sometimes but when I you don't have to I go have to somewhere. Leave. But I. But I'm interested in the nitty gritty of people's lives. I'm very nosy about other people's <laughs> lives. You know, you want to compare. But you don't mean the superficial things. You mean the unsuperficial yeah, things. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't. I talking about sports is not really something that's. that's uh, but I, I want to cast a one powerful vote for superficiality <laughs> right here, and for. It's easier way to live. Maybe it's not as satisfying in some ways. And that's but... the problem with going to uh, cocktail parties or large parties, which I've always hated because you're supposed to like work the room like we were talking about with Alex. You're yeah. supposed to be able to do that kind of chit-chat. And that's that has hard. always been very difficult for me. Um, that's what you always say, Jim. Then you turn into a social butterfly at all these events. You tell me I have to wait for you. We have to walk in together. Because I don't like going in by myself to things we both do. And together. And five seconds later, you're off. And I don't see you again Forever. But in all seriousness, you Spreading know why that is, that is. You know why that is. So you can make small talk all no, over the room? No, no, no. I mean, as soon as I identify where the pigs and blankets are, <laughs> I am there. Nancy and Merrimack. And why else would you go to a cocktail party? Nancy and Merrimack, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for calling in. Hi. Yay. Hey, great to talk to you guys. Um, I just wanted to say I had to, I actually had to do a paper on this for my, uh, master's, uh, you did? uh master's program. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, yeah, it's very interesting. Tell us. Um, human, yeah, human beings, um, uh, human beings are kind of inherently shy. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons for that is that, um, people are actually, um, prey at predators and prey. So when you go in and you make smart, uh, small talk with somebody, you're assessing whether they're friendly or responsive to you as I another person. This. Yeah. So, you know, you go say hello to somebody and they, you know, they go like that to you. You know, they're not friendly. So it actually has a, it has a um, you know, biological root for human beings. So it can be transitional. So small talk can yes. get you to the place that Marjorie likes to go. Is that not what you're saying? And if it turns out it doesn't work, then you just move on to the next person or next conversation, right? Right, exactly. And most people are not concerned. About, you know, most people that you try to interact with actually do want you to be friendly with them because they're more concerned about what you think of them rather than they're thinking about you. So you're actually doing them, giving them a gift or doing them a favor, especially at a party going over there and saying, hi, my name is Nancy. How are you? I love that. So it's actually a gift. That's great. Nancy, I'm really glad you called. Thanks so much for your time. Stephen, who's a man, says no yes. small talk. It's often the only thing that keeps me from talking about politics and ending up in a fist fight. By the way, that is there's some truth to that too. But that's yeah. an aberrate that's a function of this particular Well, time. I think that's one of the things that you think about you know with Thanksgiving a month or so away. Did you think about interacting with family members whose politics are different from yours? So you want to talk about the family stuff. You you, you want to talk about things that have nothing to do with politics. So small through. talk is okay with you on Thanksgiving because of this the Horror, well, I see it more as gossiping about family through? members, you know, and their travails. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? I think I do. Sarah Nakar, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi. Hi. It's a pleasure to speak to both of you. you First too. time caller. Oh, oh thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Uh, I want to vehemently disagree with the previous caller. Sure. Um, I am very comfortable um, with silence. I am a person where I will ride the elevator. Um, with someone, and, and other than greeting them uh, with a good morning or a hello, I'm quite comfortable um, not making small talk. I, I 
married a very, very social man uh, from Massachusetts. So, you know, when we when it comes to parties and 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 more social gatherings, I definitely step it up. Um, but I don't have any problem, you know, holding a glass of wine or shoving my mouth with appetizers and just kind of not really engaging in, in small talk. I love that. I love the yeah. elevator imagery too. That's a perfect How about the forum for it. Holding the wine and shoving so, it down those appetizers. My you should kind hang of around woman. with Jim. You get, hey, to, Sarah, you get the pigs and blankets together. Thanks for the first uh, <laughs> call. We uh, we appreciate it. You know, do you not? I mean, not only do you like deeper conversations than I do. Do you? Is that both a positive and and the other parts a negative? Meaning, you don't like small talk, or you prefer to do away with the small talk and get right to it? I mean, what you know what I mean? Well, it's sort of. I mean, talking about again sports or maybe talking about politics. I I, I just am. I don't very... think that's small talk, and uh, you know, if well, someone says, "So is... who do you think is going to win the midterms?" That's small talk. Yeah. But I mean, talking about your political. I mean, I feelings... guess if you're really into sports, which I, obviously I am not, but if you're into, you know, the stats or who's the best pitcher out right now at the Red Sox and who's the best closer and all that kind of thing. I mean, I I think a lot of people like generally get a lot of pleasure out of discussing that. But I don't have any area. Of, I don't have any expertise in that area. Or interest. Yeah. I, yeah. But I, I'm in, I'm interested. I'm nosy, I guess, about other people's lives. Uh-huh. Well, let know? me. I don't even. You know, I think one of the reasons why we we're almost talking by each other is it depends on what the definition of small talk is. Let me mm-hmm. give you an example. Is this small talk? Uh, last night when we were at the World Series, mm-hmm. thanks to a friend of ours, I went on. I'd say for four minutes, five minutes, about whether or not I should just have the grilled onions. <laughs> Or the grilled onions and peppers with my first sausage. And you responded, gave me your guidance. We got some guidance from our friend. Then I thought about it. I asked you another follow. Is that small talk or what would you consider that? I think for you, that's probably deep. The most, the thing that you're most interested in. Exactly. That was my point. What the food, what the smorgasbord is in the, the, what do you call those things? Box seats or what are they called? Sweets. Sweets. By the way, I did go for both the, okay, I'm assuming people are interested. I went for the grilled peppers and the grilled onion combo and then I added a little spicy mustard and it was good. But I don't know if I would have gotten there had we not had that I remember you walked in and said, wow, look at that mound of a lobster salad. It was unbelievable. It was like big as my head, just sitting there (laughs) smiling at me. Let's go to Sharon and Norton. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Sharon. Hi there. Hi. A first-time caller. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I just wanted to add, being a good listener will sort of direct you whether you want to make small talk or not. You know, because sometimes it isn't a good idea, and sometimes it is. But if you're really a good listener, it'll sort of direct you whether you should or you shouldn't. Well, also, I, that is a brilliant, and I'm, I can't, it's so obvious, I can't believe we didn't make it, but you made it wonderfully, Sharon, is it's also respectful to the person with whom you're communicating. Because there's certain, uh, you know, there's only some people only want you to go so far. Some people want that to be a transition, small talk. And some people, like Marjorie, if you're listening to her, want to go right to the more intense. That is a wonderful point, Sharon. It was a great first call. Do you not agree with her? You should listen and gauge where your companion in that conversation wants to go. Thanks, Sharon. You know what really drives me crazy? I really try hard not to do this, but you know how somebody tells you a story about how uh, they broke their leg in three places in 1997 or whatever, and you can't wait to tell them how you broke your leg in four places Uh in 2001. What's wrong with that? Well, I really try hard not to do that anymore. Why? Because I figure that's 
they don't want me to try to tell one them one up them kind of thing. Yeah, but that I mean? shows you can relate to them. You've had a comparable experience. Why is that not a polite kind of thing? I just think I just try not to do that anymore. I think people don't want to hear about. Uh, you know, my experience. They're trying to tell me about theirs. By the way, can I be clear here? Because I think you're painting a picture of me as a rather small person in terms of <laughs> intellect and that sort of thing. I mean, it, well, I did discuss with our friend and and Marjorie the whole issue of what should go on the sausage. I, I had other conversations, too. I met a guy. Uh, I met a guy maybe an hour after we got there. We talked about the quality of the lobster and the... <laughs> And then make it yourself lobster roll. So I'm not limited to like a sausage conversation. I no. have I can I can talk about and anything. And there were the French fries. You were quite impressed. They were by really the fr- good, by but the they French were crisp fries. and yep. really nice. And they came back and they said, after all this, they said the ice cream cart has arrived. Yeah. And Jim said, "Ooh." By the way, I knocked oh. over four people. I mean, it was just because I wanted to get. You know, it's really embarrassing. What's that? Is the debris. At our feet. I know. Well, that's because you did not see the debris while I was waiting for you guys outside Fenway. And I had, as I said, maybe 200 peanuts in shells. And I was like up to my knees you in were. shells. You were. I did see the debris when I walked up to you and noticed it was odd. I'm going to tweet that photograph out, actually. You were covered in peanut shells. In peanut shells. I had to brush them off for days. Uh, Maura, you're in Attleboro. You're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for your call and your patience. Hi. 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 Um, I was calling uh, with reference to where the study was done in Finland. I was thinking, how much diversity do they have in Finland? Do they really need to make small talk to get to know each other? Um, That's a good point, actually. I think, I, I think in in the area that we live in, there's there's a lot of diversity, and I think it really helps to make small talk with people that you are not like. Um, I used to do that with my kids in the in the supermarket when they were little, just to get them used to seeing different kinds of people. If we were passing by mm. someone, I would make small talk about something they were buying or their darling little child, or just so they could see that we are all the same. That's a, it's sort of yeah, like an icebreaker kind of thing. More, that's an interesting yeah. perspective. I like that. Thank you very much for uh, for calling. Let's go to uh, David in Methuen. Hi, David. Hello, David. Hi, guys. Marjorie, I still haven't heard that fabulous laugh in a long time. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I was laughing a little bit. You have to today. wait till after the elections, David, unfortunately. <laughs> or that could, be, could be could never, be David. Months. That's right. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Full, dis- full disclosure, I, I texted my wife and told her I was going to be on. Oh, oh great. <laughs> this is more about her than me. I, I hate talking on the phone. I hate small talk. I don't really like people. But my <laughs> wife... My wife can talk on the phone to her best friend or our daughter for an hour at a time. And I say, what did you talk about? And she says, well, nothing. And, and I, I, I don't understand how you can spend an hour with small talk talking about it. Well, you're connecting. I mean, the difference is you're honest and say you don't like people. She obviously does like people. Is that not the divide in the relationship, David? Well, plus she's an attorney, and so she she tends to be able to talk, uh, you know, at will. You got it, women, David. Thanks. I think women talk a lot more about their relationships. Oh, they I mean, clearly do. You know, you hear an awful lot about your girlfriend's husbands. I don't think that men together talk that much about their wives. I think it's just a different thing. You talk about your relationships and complaining, and sometimes there's a lot of good sex talk going on there, Jim, that you miss out. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, those fins, I'll tell you, they are really losing out. <laughs> Okay. Uh, thank you very much for listening to another edition of Boston Thanks Public Radio. Tomorrow we're going to be uh, visited by Andrew Cabral for another edition of Law and Order. WGBA science correspondent Heather Goldstone and Robin D'Angelo 
on her latest book, White Fragility. Uh, I think that's about uh, white people not wanting to talk about racism. Isn't it that is. what that's about? Yeah, it is. In yeah, that's, part, not, that's not small talk, I suppose. Our crew, Chelsea Murrs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Teresky, and Arjun Singh. Our engineer is John Thequah Parker. Jim Browdy, I know you're not feeling well, but you're powering ahead to do <laughs> TV course. tonight. I am what are powering you do? through. A couple of things. One, we're going to have an in-depth conversation with all sides of the Harvard admissions slash affirmative action oh, controversy and litigation, and hopefully learn some things, too, because... I have to say, I'm not clear on all the things. And I'm really excited. Laverne Cox from Orange is the New Black and more is in town. We had the head of the human rights campaign before he and she had a joint event and some other people today, too, uh, to urge people to vote yes on one and preserve the transgender public accommodation anti-discrimination law. Uh, Laverne's going to join me. I am really thrilled to meet her, I should say. I'm really yeah. excited about it. We'll talk about a variety of things, but that'll be. And obviously, President Trump's attempt to... Uh, change uh, the definitions uh, for discrimination persons uh, uh, people of ge- uh, gender my name is jim browdy i'm marjorie and thanks for listening see you tomorrow see you bye